your ride ready for spring driving with Dobbs Spring Break Deals. Money saver deals you can use on Goodyear, Pirelli, Cooper, Michelin, and General Tires. Expert auto service, too. Click on GoToDobbs.com for spring break deals now. Cheap, cheap, fun, fun. Spring is in the air and Dirt Cheap is in your neighborhood ready to deliver the perfect drinks to your doorstep. That's right. All of Dirt Cheap's convenient locations now offer delivery of their wide selections of beers, wines, and all the spirits you need. And if you're like me, nothing hits better in the springtime than a nice weeded bourbon. Ask the friendly staff at Dirt Cheap about their selection of weeders like Maker's Mark, Larceny, and so many others. Download the Dirt Cheap app and order curbside or delivery. Have fun, but be careful out there. Hi, I'm Dan for Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers, here to share the easiest way to buy tires. Come to Dobbs. With the best tire brands and the biggest inventory, you'll get your tires the same day at the lowest price, guaranteed. Next time you need tires, get into Dobbs. This is the BK and Ferrario Podcast, powered by I Promise. Now here's BK and Ferrario. On two for San Jose. Sorensen to Couture to Carlson, and the shot hit the post. It got behind Bennington, but it hit the post. Bennington will now cover it. We up. got a lot of guys that aren't skating and not competing hard enough. Fruit coming on. Perron shooting. Save made by Jones, but too many men. They're going to say Perron came on too early, and they're going to give the Blues too many men. We can't go to the box that much. It's it's really hard on people. It's hard on our team. Can't get to our game because of it. I don't know where we're at in the league right now, penalty-wise. Might be leading the league. He brings it in. He deeks. He shoots. He scores. Stick side over the pad, and the Sharks get the two points tonight. The Blues get one, and the Blues lose in the game 2-1. to one. It's not that the Blues were bad last night. I wouldn't say they were bad last night. They were just sloppy. When they were playing five on five, they looked okay most of the time. Wouldn't someone say that that's more of an insult? Like if you told someone, hey, you're a bad eater. Hey, you're a sloppy eater. Sloppy seems a little more insulting. However you want to view it. (laughs) I wouldn't say that the Blues played. They played poorly. I would say that the Blues were not like an atrocious team last night when it was five on five. They did not look like the Blues team that we expect them to look like. That's totally fair. And the biggest issue for them right now is the penalties. Like it's we can get away from talking so much about the special teams, which are a problem. Although last night the penalty kill was pretty good. Power play now has reached historical levels of ineptitude. We'll get to that. It's the fact that they are taking so many damn penalties. This is a team that was constructed to be at its peak on the power play, which hasn't been thus far, but I think that'll be fine. And at five on five, that's really where they should win games. That's been their identity now for really five years, even pre-Craig Berube. The identity of this team was win with five on five play. And Alex, right now, one of the biggest issues that I can come up with is the fact that they're not playing very much five on five. If you look at the penalty minutes per game in all of hockey right now, the Blues are second in the league. They're averaging more than 12 and a half minutes per game of penalties. 
they're just not allowing themselves enough time to be able to be five on five or on the power play. And that's the biggest problem for them right now. They're lackadaisical with their skating. They're lackadaisical with their compete levels. And that's what's haunting them. It is. And look, frankly, they're not even playing enough time on the power play. That's frustrating. And I told you this stat in the office and I went back and looked at it exactly. So the first three power plays that the St. Louis Blues have, BK, which normally would be a total of six minutes of power play time. Blues had two minutes and 16 seconds. So basically what that means is the other three minutes and 44 seconds were negated to four on four play because the Blues were taking penalties, whether it was the too many men on the ice penalty, whether it was an offensive hooking or a slashing penalty. The Blues are just playing sloppy. And I don't think there's any wrong way of saying that because the players feel that way. Look, you don't take those penalties in games if you're not playing sloppy, if you're not moving your feet, if you're utilizing your stick more than you're utilizing your feet. Now, the problem was that the Blues were at a point last night where they had basically three defensemen on the ice and one of them was in the freaking penalty box. Luckily, Tory Krug came back out onto the ice, but you're right. This Blues team will not succeed if they are giving up seven power plays to the opposition because what that does is it keeps Robert Thomas off the ice who played 11 minutes and nine seconds of ice time last night. It keeps Zach Sanford off the ice who played nine minutes and 18 seconds last night. And it keeps an Ivan Barbashev off the ice who played around eight and a half minutes. This is the problem. If you want your number one guys to play like number one guys, you got to give them ice time, and the Blues just aren't giving them ice time. Yeah, meanwhile, Ryan O'Reilly played almost 23 minutes on the ice last night. Right. Like, that dude's going to be exhausted. I The the three-on-three in overtime, Ryan O'Reilly, full credit, because they, I cannot say this about everybody on the, on the roster right now, mm-hmm. Ryan O'Reilly fought his ass off in three-on-three. Tell you, what you texted us last night. You could see those other guys, like, sprinting for the boards. They were ready to get off the ice. Ryan O'Reilly was ready to die out there on the ice. I mean, he was, it was like a minute and a half of him three on three, ready to go. It was unreal, man. And that was at the end of the game after already having played the full 60 minutes. And it's not like he's not on penalty kill or power play. He's doing everything. And so they just, they have too many guys right now in my mind. And it seems like in the team's mind as well, that aren't playing at their peak performance and that's why it's so frustrating is because you can't you can't pin this on any one player mm-hmm. if you look at the penalties last night it's Perron, Pareko, Krug, Sunquist, Gunnarsson, Pareko it's everybody mm-hmm. it's everybody Hoffman I thought didn't look very good last night I thought that was Krug's worst game that I've seen him play so far and some of that might be due to what appeared to be an injury that took place but even before then he didn't look great just a a weird game and a weird sequence of games now that we've seen and they've both happened the two strangest games took place in the second game against us uh, mm-hmm. in these series a horrible way for me to well, describe it's still it, hard to understand back to back the second game and yeah. that back to back for both of them yeah and and i i feel like that's going to be a common occurrence this season and we've talked a lot about it and I thought Craig Berube painted a picture of it last night on our pregame show, talking with Curbs. You know, in a in a normal season, you're not preparing for the same team like you would in the playoffs. You're preparing for another team. You're using film. The other team hasn't seen you for a while, so you can you can prepare differently. And there's kind of that unknown. But now it's San Jose goes back to the hotel room in St. Louis after that five four loss. 
and all they do is watch tape. You're locked in a hotel room. You can't leave. You're watching tape until you hit the ice. So you are nitpicking everything on your team, and then you're going through everything that needs to happen against the opposition. So that's why, frankly, you saw two goals allowed by the or one goal allowed by the St. Louis Blues or for the I'm sorry for the Blues. Sharks allowed that one goal because they know exactly what St. Louis is going to do to them. So I think that's why the sloppy play ensued last night because San Jose was expecting it. If it's the flip side of this, and we'll see this, I'm sure at some point where the blues lose the first game of a series, that second game, I expect the blues to respond. It's not going to be easy to pull out series sweeps. Unlike what we're seeing right now with the Vegas golden Knights, who seem to do it all the time. Print burns had eight minutes on the power play last night. Eight minutes on the power play. There are some hockey players that play eight minutes in a game. Yeah. I mean, that's it's true. That's insane to be able to have that in any one game. All right. Somebody on the text line, 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line. Guys, can you call out some specifics to what you need to be better overall? What was Chief calling out last night? Let's listen to this full Craig Berube con- uh, press conference from last night. It ain't going to take us a whole lot of time. You have 10 minutes, BK. I don't know if you were able to watch this last night, but Craig Berube has a tell when he's really <laughs> mad. I learned this last night, actually. Yeah, it's the death look. It's blinking. <laughs> he, he blinked no fewer than a million times last night during his one minute and 30 second press conference. It's also him turning his head like an owl, like he's looking around at people. And I know he doesn't have the media in there because it's Zoom right now, but he looks around like, do I have to answer this question? Really? Can, can we? Can I please get back to the locker room and, and deal with the problem right now? He wanted no part of being in that media room. Let's hear this Craig Berube press conference. We're going to stop this in individual moments to react to what Craig Berube has just said. Let's go ahead and hear what Craig Berube had to say after the game. Did you get more of the defense that you wanted tonight, especially with the PK? Yeah, PK killed off seven penalties. I mean, two five on threes. It's ridiculous, the penalties, but we can't go to the box that much. It's it's really hard on people. It's hard on our team. Can't get to our game because of it. I don't know where we're at in the league right now, penalty-wise. Might be leading the league. Yeah, I think seven more tonight puts you at about 20. It's about bottom. JR throwing freaking shade. Read the room, JR. Yeah, seven more tonight, Peruby. I know you're already furious. Let's go ahead and add one more log on the fire. All right, let's continue here. Yeah, I think seven more tonight puts you at about 20. It's about bottom in the league there. You know, Craig, there was a lot of them tonight, but the one, the too many men right after you get the penalty uh, to go on the power play, just. uh, Well, it's not a smart play. You got to wait till the guy gets to the box. That's it. Okay. So he's referencing David Perron's penalty there. I don't think he was thrilled with David Perron's play last night. No, he was not. Go out on a limb here based on hearing that part of it. And Perron didn't play all that well. He's got to step it up. Correct That's me. one guy they need to play better. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but he didn't have an awful lot of time on the on the three on three overtime. Perron, he was out there with O'Reilly. He was out there with O'Reilly, but they went quick shifts with with that line and got somebody else. I mean, you mentioned it. O'Reilly didn't get off the ice. That's very uncommon because that's their number one overtime unit. It was last year, O'Reilly, Perron, and Petro. This year, it was O'Reilly, Perron, and Krug. So that was, or I'm sorry, O'Reilly, Perron, and Pareko. So he was not happy with Perron. I can tell you that much. Let's continue with Craig Berube. Yeah, I think seven more tonight. Is it just a matter of course that refs are going to, early in the season, it seems like they call more penalties? They're penalties. That's why they call them. So you had really no beef with any of the calls tonight? No. (laughs) I I love when he gets those questions, too, because, again, you can hear 
honestly, Craig Ruby's the type of guy that you can hear him staring at you audio wise. And I, if you have an, you the listener, if you have a, an opportunity today to check out Fox Sports Midwest tweeted out the full video of Craig Bruby's press conference last night. Watch his eyes as he's, as he says, no, he's just blinking continuously. Yeah. Just, no, just, there, that wasn't the issue. All right, let's continue here. We've got a, just a little bit left with Craig Bruby's post game press conference. Craig, is this a game tonight where maybe they were winning, you know, more of the loose pucks, wall battles, and kind of had you guys on your heels at times? We got a lot of guys that aren't skating and not competing hard enough how do you rectify that keep on them talk to them show them that's it all right you guys good you need any other questions or what and and uh you moved Hoffman onto the line with o'reilly and trying to get some scoring going trying to get you know see you know see if it can ignite him a little bit and get him going all right thanks he didn't make the mistake on that second one he's like i would i'm getting out of here the first time he said anything else you guys can understand i clearly want nothing to do with being here anymore we're done here right (laughs) jim thomas yeah one more burby yeah (laughs) i was just gonna say we joke around all the time here about how big a cojones andy reed has uh from the kansas City Chiefs going for it at fourth and one. Uh, Jim Thomas and Jeremy Rutherford have even bigger cojones asking Craig Ruby the questions that they asked him because I know you got to do it, but that man scares the hell out of me even via Zoom. I loved it. Do you? We have just a minute here, Ferrario. Yeah. Any guesses on who he's talking about when he says we've got too many guys that aren't competing? Hard you right know, now. it's hard to sit there and and pick out certain players because right now, frankly, there's a lot of guys that aren't doing it. But I'm just going off of the time the time on the ice last night and the juggling of the lines. The only line that wasn't juggled was Shen, Schwartz, and Cairo. Everything else was moved around. So I'm only assuming here we're talking about a guy like Zach Sanford who's on that O'Reilly Perron line. Perron taking that penalty, you know, maybe looking at a Sammy Blay, who I know got into the lineup. There's a lot of throw Hoffman's name, Hoffman into the mix. name needs to be in there. You know, even a Tyler Bozak, who I know they want more from on the ice. Defensively, frankly, I think Justin Falk was your best player last night. He, I mean, honestly, defensively and offensively, he was your best player. I thought Pareko looked good for, for large parts of the game. Pareko looked better than what he has in the first couple of games, but you know, Tori Krug, I thought Nico Mikola looked really good as well. 14 minutes of ice time on the penalty kill, so, but Vince Dunn's going to be another one that I'm sure he is not happy with the play overall. He's Alex Ferrario. I'm Brandon Kylie. It is BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. It's 1115. Your time check brought to you by Clarkson Jewelers, an officially licensed Rolex jeweler. We will get into the latest with the Yadier Molina sweepstakes coming up at 1130. Some news from around the league I think could potentially have a big impact on his market. But coming up next, let's talk to Steve Weich, NFL rather, network reporter. I want to talk to him about what's going on with Deshaun Watson down in Houston. And if Eric Bieniemy gets hired by the Texans, would that be enough to keep Deshaun Watson with the Texans. We'll talk to Steve Weich coming up next on 101 ESPN. You guys good? You need any other questions? This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. And celebrity line happy to be joined by Steve White, NH- NFL rather network reporter, host of the Huddle and Flow podcast with Jim Trotter. You can check that out on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen to podcast. Also, give him a follow on Twitter at wyche eighty nine. Steve, always appreciate the time, my friend. How you doing today? 
I'm doing well. It's always great to talk to you guys. Absolutely. Happy to have you on in your hometown here in St. Louis. So let's start out with this Deshaun Watson situation because it's, to me, the most stunning story that could possibly come out of an NFL season. You've got one of the best young quarterbacks that we've seen in recent memory in the NFL, and he potentially wants out of Houston. What can you tell us about the latest on this story, and has has anything changed in his current situation? Well, nothing's really changed. I mean, you see some of these cryptic tweets he's putting out basically saying, get me out of here. And this is like the latest example of an athlete trying to use his leverage, his celebrity, and his status to get out. I mean, we see it all the time in the NBA where you have guaranteed contracts. But in the NFL where you don't have guaranteed contracts, you rarely see the player pushback like this. But he knows after all the dysfunction that's gone on with that organization, he's it. Right? He's the guy. You know, J.J. Watts, Popper, and all that, but Sean Watson's a guy who's going to be there, you know, well, supposedly for the next 10 years. But, you know, the, the ownership, Bob McNair, the longtime owner, died. He gave it to his son, Cal. And, you know, the inheritance doesn't always <laughs> – the next guy in line doesn't always do it like Pops did it. Mm-hmm. And as we're seeing, it, it's just not working out. I think Deshaun recognizes that – there's definitely some work to be done on being kind the way I'm phrasing that. Um, and, you know, he just doesn't like the fact that, you know, Cal told him, we want you to be part of this process, who we're going to talk to, this and that. And look, it's not just it's not just Deshaun Watson. You know, they, they brought in Tony Dungy and all of these people to talk to this, this hiring process. I've spoken to Tony Dungy. He's like, yeah, I mean, we barely had a conversation. So there's a lot of disenchantment, and uh, you know, from everything I'm hearing, talking to officials with teams in the league, there there is tremendous dysfunction down there. I don't think they're going to end up trading Deshaun Watson, but you better believe a lot of teams are are, are going fishing, and they're, put, they're probably going to put some pretty attractive bait in the water. Yeah, Steve, it seems like Houston has to go into like ultimate damage control here, and it it. it... Also seems that they're doing that with the Eric Bieniemy interview, who they weren't going to interview in the beginning process. So my question to you is, can they do damage control enough for this to make Deshaun Watson happy? Uh, great question. I mean, look, you know, I think because they invited him into the process, now is where the damage control comes in. Because, you know, look, the Packers weren't going to Aaron Rodgers and saying, hey, look, we're going to draft your your heir. We're going to draft the guy who's eventually going. To, like they didn't they didn't put him make him part of the process. But the Texans said they do that with Deshaun. So that I think is part of the disenchantment. So if they look, here's the thing: they may offer Eric Bieniemy the job, right? He may not want it. He may see. He may say, "Look, I'm better off sticking with Patrick Mahomes for another year than dealing with the craziness that's going down there." So you know now they put themselves in, in such a, a tenuous situation. That it's not, it may not be an attractive job. Someone's going to take it, but I just don't know if it's going to be able to pacify Deshaun Watson. But at the same time, the Texans have the ultimate hammer. They don't have to trade him. So then his next move would be like, well, I'm just not going to play, and then he's got to forfeit all that money. So this is this is a game of chicken that could that could get real real dicey. I mean, we haven't seen. This is just the beginning of it right now. And it's, I mean, it's crazy, Steve, because. I mean, we're talking about a guy that is considered to be, and you, you certainly would know him better than I do, but 
from everything that I've read, everything that I've seen, everything that I've heard, Deshaun Watson is one of the best young men in the sport. So it's not like we're talking about some disgruntled employee that's just constantly right. uh, bleeping and moaning about his situation in Houston. He was a good soldier for years down there, and he thought he was going to be the face of the franchise moving forward. And things have gotten so bad for him, for Deshaun Watson, that we've arrived here. And that's that's one thing I don't want to lose sight of, because I think in these situations, a lot of the times fans take the side of ownership where it's like, oh, you've got another unhappy athlete that just doesn't like where he's at. That's not the case for Deshaun, at least from what I can tell. That That is not happening in Houston right now. And I'm, and I'm glad you brought up that point because this is an outstanding human being. I mean, he's a guy who doesn't say much. He is not an arrogant guy. He is beloved in that community and by his peers. I mean, remember, this is a guy who kind of grew up about 50 miles outside of Atlanta. He was homeless for a while. I mean, he is, you know, his character is, is like, you know, like Warwick Dunn, you know, just one of these guys who's always on the community, no arrogance. So that's what, that's what compounds kind of the disenchantment of what's going on with the ownership situation and leadership situation. We're talking to Steve Weiss here on 101 ESPN NFL Network reporter and native St. Louis and Steve, let's talk a little bit. He, um, Alex Ferrario asked you about Eric Bieniemy kind of tangentially there. I did want to ask you about Bieniemy because I'm I'm from KC. I'm a Chiefs fan at heart. I'm absolutely stunned. I I mean I love the fact that Bieniemy might be back with the Chiefs next year, but it it's ridiculous that he might be back next year. What's happened? How, no, how have we yeah. arrived at this place? It makes no sense. Um, it's it's really interesting. Um, well, part of it, look. Let's just call it what it is. I mean, look, the the terms of the hiring cycle when it comes to diversity has been awful. I mean, and it and and look, talking to people, diverse candidates, people in the league, non-diverse candidates, they don't think the enemy is going to get offered the job down there. That means out of all these openings, out of seven openings, he's not going to get offered a job. Now, part of it is because the Chiefs go deep in the playoffs. This has hurt other people before. Um, But the other part is people keep coming up with excuses not to hire Eric. Right. It is um, he doesn't interview well. Um, he doesn't call plays. You know, people forget that Zach Taylor, the head coach of the Cincinnati Bengals. He never called plays. He never led a meeting with the Rams. He was the quarterbacks coach. He led. He, he, he met with the three quarterbacks. He never even met with the entire offense. Um, but he's, he got a head coaching job. And let's not forget Matt Nagy and Doug Peterson were not longtime play callers under Andy Reid. And, you know, Andy Reid has endorsed Eric Bieniemy. Patrick Mahomes has endorsed Eric Bieniemy, and he has, doesn't get a job. Yet, Joe Judge gets the New York Giants job after Bill Belichick makes one phone call to John Mara with the Giants. So it, it is just perplexing how an endorsement of a Super Bowl-winning coach, a great coach of Andy Reid, the MVP, and Patrick Mahomes, doesn't work for Eric Bieniemy, but – an endorsement from Bill Belichick works for a special teams coach. Oh, who, by the way, never called plays. So again, it's, it's just one of these things, the goalpost absolutely move for diverse candidates and for Eric Bieniemy, it, it, it is as confounding um, of a situation as I've, as I've ever seen in covering this league for as long as I have. You know, Steve, on, on top of the Bieniemy story, and of course Deshaun Watson, this is going to be a really interesting offseason because of how many quarterback names are going to be out yep. there and how many available spots are out there. How do you see this offseason going, and do you really see that many changes when it comes to new faces with new organizations? There's going to be a ton of changes. I mean, first off, you know, you're going to have Drew Brees. He's done. Phil Rivers is out. 
So you're going to also fill those voids. You, you know, you don't know what's going to happen with Ben Roethlisberger. Um, and so, so let's just assume those three are out. Uh, I think Tom Brady's going to come back. You already had issues. You know, like what are the Patriots going to do? What are the Panthers going to do? What is Washington going to do? So there's not going to be enough quarterbacks available, so to speak. I, I think Jimmy Garoppolo is going to be available. So the Niners have to find his replacement if that tends to be the case. We don't Deshaun Deshaun Watson. We talk that's going to be the big chess piece, right? Is, mm-hmm. is someone going to go there? And we know in the draft, Trevor Lawrence is going to probably head to Jacksonville. We think the Jets are going to keep Sam Darnold. So Justin Fields is going to be available. And uh, I'm blanking on the name of the quarterback from Brigham Young. Those are going to be your top three drafted quarterbacks. So Jameis Winston is in play. Will Cam Newton be viewed as a starter again? The, the movement across the league is going to be absolutely insane. And we thought it was crazy last year. That, that's going to have nothing compared to this year. We're talking to Steve Weich, NFL Network reporter here on 101 ESPN. Steve, kind of as a as an aside from that at the quarterback position as well, you've got guys like Baker Mayfield, Josh Allen, Lamar Jackson that could potentially be extended this offseason. I wanted to ask you about it because as I look at what's going on with L.A. and Jared Goff and Philly and Carson Wentz and how they kind of got themselves into a situation where they're almost stuck with those guys this offseason, do you think that's going to lead to any – um, trepidation by the Browns when it comes to re-signing Baker Mayfield or the Ravens when it comes to re-signing Lamar Jackson. Do you think those teams will be a little more cautious because of what they're seeing with these other teams who re-signed their quarterbacks early and then got stuck later on? Yeah, I think this is a situation. I, I'm, I'm with you. I think they'll let these guys get into that you know post-fourth year before they make the extension. We saw John Harbaugh come out with the Ravens and say they're going to extend Lamar. Um, at some point. So, you know, they, they're committed to him. They know how talented he is. And I think that will happen with Baker as well. But, uh, you know, we, we saw what happened in Chicago. They didn't extend Mitch Trubisky. Um, and, you know, that's another quarterback situation because Nick Foles, who they thought could take the job, didn't do it. Trubisky comes back and plays well. Now they're in a jam. I mean, do you franchise Mitch Trubisky and pay that guy $27 million for a season? So, um I do think some teams have trepidation. Dak Prescott showed last year to the Cowboys who franchised him, um, you know, and then he gets hurt. You know, there, there's another reason for trepidation. I think Dak is going to get extended because he showed how valuable he was by not being there. But, yeah, I mean, I think more and more teams are going to be careful because of the golf and the Wentz experiment because they looked so great early and they've leveled off with really strong offensive-minded coaches. Steve, let's uh, let's talk about the games this weekend because I'm curious your perspective. My guy uh, BK over here is a huge Chiefs fan, and I believe he's personally afraid of the Buffalo Bills. And then on the flip side, you got legend against legend with Rodgers and Brady. Who do you see as the uh, Super Bowl contenders this year? Well, I mean, I, you know, I, I like I like the uh, the Packers and the Chiefs, but that doesn't mean that the Chiefs should not be afraid of the Buffalo Bills. Um, it, was a, it was a coaching clinic the last time they met early in the season. The Bills dared the Chiefs to run, and, and the Chiefs ran it 45 times and just blew them up. Um, and we saw, you know, the Buccaneers take the Packers apart uh, earlier in the season. That's that's not going to happen again. Um, it, look, it's, it's going to come down, and the NFC is going to come down to the offensive and defensive fronts because the Packers' offensive line was just dominant 
against the Rams. They're running the ball, but they're facing against they're facing the number one rush defense, right? So if the Bucks can slow down that run game, they've got a really really good shot. You say, wow, you could Aaron Rodgers, he can throw it forty five times and beat you. Yeah, but you can defend teams a little bit differently if you can slow down the run game and get a lead on them. Um, in the AFC, I, I think this is a fantastic game. I think the Chiefs have too many weapons on the perimeter. They can take advantage of some of the passing schemes that the Bills play. Um, and Andy Reid's a great play caller. Just the interesting thing is, if this game gets into a toe-to-toe type match, what Josh Allen and the Bills are doing, because the Bills can move the ball in the Chiefs secondary too. Let's let's not act like the Chiefs defense is world beaters. So I think this is going to be a really, really good game. I think for Kansas City, it's going to be important to get an early lead and to, to put it in the hands of Josh Allen more than the Bills would like to. Steve, last question that I've got for you here. I know some of this can be kind of sports radio hacky, but I'm really I'm always interested in it because I, I love kind of the Hall of Fame stuff and looking big picture with these guys. For the quarterbacks, who do you think stands to gain the most by winning a Super Bowl this year? Because like Patrick Mahomes, for instance, could be the first guy to go back to back since Tom Brady in the early 2000s. If Rodgers wins one, it's his second. And we know how significant that is for quarterbacks when it comes to legacy. Who do you think is the quarterback that has the most to gain by winning a Super Bowl this year in your mind? Well, it's Aaron Rodgers because, he, you know, look, he's two, three years left in his career. Maybe he gets that second one. Like you said, that that pretty much he, – he's going to the Hall of Fame anyway, but this this locks it up. And, you know, all we've heard is how the Packers have wasted so much of his career by not putting the talent around him to get back to the Super Bowl. Well, now he's got the opportunity. We know Brady, he's, you know, rock solid. His legacy is, is, is the GOAT. And it's just that Mahomes and Allen have more time. You know, you never know if you're going to get back. You know, we always thought Dan Marino had more, more time too and never got back. But Mahomes already has one. Josh Allen's got a great opportunity. If he gets one, again, that puts Josh Allen in a certain club. But I think Aaron Rodgers has the most to gain. He's Steve Weich. You can check him out on NFL Network, also host of the Huddle and Flow podcast with Jim Trotter. They're both tremendous. They do fantastic work. So check that out, Apple Podcast or wherever you listen to your podcast. Steve, always appreciate the time, my man. We look forward to talking with you again soon. Hopefully we've got a good Super Bowl to be able to prepare for. Uh, Same with you. Thanks for having me on, guys. Absolutely. That is Steve White joining us here on 101 ESPN. He works for NFL Network, not NHL Network. Like I had I had some kind of mental block. Personally, allow me to say NFL. Personally, I was (laughs) waiting to talk hockey with a guy and you never allowed me to. So like enough of that, BK. Geez, that's Alex Ferrario. I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. Coming up next, there is some news with a couple of catchers around Major League Baseball. I do wonder is this going to get the market going for Yadier Molina? We've only asked that question a million times this offseason. Maybe this is the time when it's real. It's coming up on 101 ESPN. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. As you just heard there in the update, Robert Murray of Fansided is saying that the Braves are circling on free agent catcher JT Realmuto. Other teams on the West Coast are also expressing interest in Real Muto. Also, Jason Castro signed a two-year, $7 million deal with the Astros, which includes $2 million in potential escalators. So it could get up to a two-year, $9 million contract, $4.5 million per season. Wanted to bring this up because, of course, here in St. Louis, we are keeping a keen eye on this catching market across baseball. If Real Muto signed with the Braves, it's hard to imagine that the Phillies wouldn't then take a look at Yadier Molina. 
That's a team that wants to compete right now, and they would have a massive hole at catcher. And they got a couple of veteran pitchers. They just signed John Lester. You got Jake Arrieta. You have Aaron Nola, one of the top pitchers in the game. You got a really good pitching staff in Philadelphia for Yachty. That's that is a team that I would absolutely think would be in on Yachty or Molina. If this is what Jason Castro is getting, by the way, I think that the market has been set at the floor. Yadier Molina is not getting less than four and a half million dollars per year. And I don't know that there was ever a question as to whether he would or not. But now we know at a minimum, a minimum, Yadier Molina will get five million dollars per season, whether it be for a one or a two year contract. And we also are starting to get a better grasp on who the contenders could be for his services. We had talked in the past about Atlanta. I thought that that had kind of that ship had kind of sailed. If they're interested in Real Muto, though, it makes you wonder could they potentially get in on Yadier Molina as well? Philly will definitely be in if they miss out on Real Muto. You know St. Louis is going to be. And the fact that Robert Murray said West Coast teams are expressing interest would lead you to believe that it's probably the Angels. Eh, but they got Suzuki, so I wouldn't mm-hmm. think so. Maybe the Padres are still in on the catching market. It's so hard to believe, though, with how many catchers that they have. I mean... Do you think the Giants would be in on this? I mean, they're not they've got competing. Posey and they've got a big time catching prospect. Yeah, so but if that's... the DH is there, then you could take Posey out from behind the plate, and maybe you have Yachty work with some of these young catchers. Look, I'm just I'm I'm, I'm trying to f- to connect the dots any way you can. The part that surprises me, BK, is what you said. You think his floor is five million dollars? See, when I saw Jason Castro signing seven million over two years, now if I'm not mistaken, that's seven million total. total. So it's not seven million each year. Correct. I think Yachty looks at that and says, if he's getting three and a half per year, seven total, my floor has got to be eight to ten. Oh, I'm saying like he he will not get less than five is what I'm saying. I'm not I saying gotcha. that like that's what I think he'll get. I'm saying that there, it will not go below five. So nobody's going to give him that. But see, because I, I see Yachty still commanding somewhere between that eight to ten per year, even after Castro has signed that deal. It's possible. Um, Castro is not an offensive juggernaut by any stretch of the imagination, but he has had some decent seasons. He's a solid catcher overall. He's a guy that will help the um, the Astros. He has some history there. So I think that it's not as far away from Yachty's market as we would probably like to believe. Now, when Yachty was in his prime, yeah, they're they're in totally different stratospheres. Yachty or Molina was a significantly better player than Castro. But at this point, given his age and given how few teams would potentially be bidding on his services, I think it'd probably be. I I still think if you gave Yachty or Molina a six million dollar contract for next season and said, hey, with escalators similar to what we're seeing now in Castro's deal, you can get up to $10 million. I think that's probably where this ends up, in my opinion. Could be wrong on this. I've certainly been wrong before, will be again, but that feels right to me. I, I, f- I still have the sense that no matter what team signs, y- well, that's not true. I, I think if a team signs Yachty, they're going to want him to play as many games as possible. But if St. Louis signs Yachty, don't you still feel like the caveat in all of this is, hey, we'll give you the money, we want you back, but you're not playing 140 games this season. We need to see what we have. No, I don't believe that, but I also wonder if that's where the Cardinals are going to play hardball. I mean, if you're once he's on the roster, there's no hardball to be, played. but maybe that's, what's going to play, make make them play hardball for the contract. I mean, there's got to be some sense from the Cardinals front office. That's, Hey, we want Yachty back. Yes, but we got to find out what these guys are too. I think if you bring back Yachty, you know what you're signing up and for. you don't care. I mean, I I care, but it doesn't matter. No, I'm saying like as a Cardinals front office member, you just don't care. You don't care what Andrew Kisner is. He's a backup for you, and 
you, you kind of set your sights on Yvonne Herrera. I, you care, and I think that's why they are where they are right now, which is not with Yadi or Molina on the roster. But I think their decision on Yadi will tell us a lot about Andrew Kisner. I thought their their playing decisions, their playing time last year, told us everything I needed to know about Kisner. Now, card, people that cover the Cardinals closer than me, like Derek Gould, came on and told us something different. He said that he thinks that the Cardinals believe in Kisner and that they would have him as their starting catcher next season if Yadi's not back. He would know better than I. Mm-hmm. But I have no evidence to go based on that. Last year, Matt Wieters got the opportunities above Andrew Kisner whenever he had a broken toe. So yeah. I don't know how I'm supposed to take that and believe that they're going to give significant playing time to Kisner. I would just, I mean, you look back over the last three years, Yachty started 123 games, 113 games, and 42 games in this shortened season. So where's the evidence that they're going to give significant playing time to their backup? There yeah, is right. none. I fully would expect that if Yachty's back, he's going to play. If they play 162 games, I bet you he starts about between 110 and 130, yeah. depending on how healthy he is. Over the and I would imagine year. if you're bringing Yachty back, that's going to be that bridge gap to get you to Yvonne Herrera, who, if I'm not mistaken, he was just named one of the top 10 catching prospects in all of baseball. This, uh, I would imagine for Cardinals fans is, is kind of the, uh, that's what you're focusing in on, right? Like that's what you're honing in on getting to Yvonne Herrera as that uh, next player for Yachty or Molina. So it would make sense to bring him back and put him there. I'm just, I'm so in, intrigued by the Andrew Kisner situation. And now with the money coming up, you just got to wonder how much of this the Cardinals look at. Because again, the offer's been out there. The Cardinals aren't giving another offer to Yadi or Molina. I at think least, they might. You think so? Yeah. At least from what Bill DeWitt has said, it sure seems like the tone is offers out there if they wanted to accept it. It's easy to say now um, when you get closer to the time when you actually have to make a final decision, I have a feeling that they're going to make a choice that is a little bit different than that. With Alex Ferrario, I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. We'll certainly be paying attention to this story as it develops, and hopefully there's actual development uh, moving forward. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line for questions and answers coming up next. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. 780 is the Air Comfort Service text line for questions and answers. Let's start with this one from the 618. Guys, what did you see from Nico Mikola in his first extended action for the Blues last night? Ferrario, what did you see from your young man? I liked his game. I, I mean, first of all, the, the, the one thing that stuck out was the fact that I, I think he played like two minutes and 45 seconds on the penalty kill. Now, they were kind of forced into that circumstance because at one point, Gunnarsson was in the box along with Colton Pareko and Krug was in the locker room. So you had Dunn, who really never plays penalty kill time Falk and Mikola but I thought he stood his ground he plays very heavy we've talked with Joe Vitale about this who uh, Bill Armstrong the former scouting director now with the Arizona Coyotes said that Mikola it's like a dog on the bone when he's playing the puck he's heavy he's physical and he creates some offensive chances I, I mean you saw the two scoring chances that he had where he put the puck on the goaltender I like his game, and frankly, if Craig Berube, now, again, I don't know who he was talking about, but if Vince Dunn or any of these other defensemen are in that category, I wouldn't be surprised to see Nico Mikkel in the lineup again on Saturday for how good he played. I will be very interested. Do you think he could play on the right side? Yeah. I don't... It's the same thing with all defensemen. Like, they can play on the right side. They're used to it, but they prefer their their normal handedness. What are the odds that he gets more extended time in that third defensive pairing on the right side moving forward? With Vince Dunn? Mm-hmm. 
because he is a true he is more your scandella yeah. type of defenseman so when i'm saying after scandella returns we don't know when that will be right. how quick it will be he could be in there for a while for yeah. scandella we have no idea but I, I, if scandella returns do you think mikola could move over to that right side and be paired with vince dunn honestly for the way that i've seen vince dunn these last couple of games he just hasn't looked the way we want him to look defensively I wouldn't be surprised if they put Nico Mikkel on the left side and keep Carl Gunnarsson on the right side. Now, Gunnarsson hasn't been the best either. I mean, frankly, a lot of guys have been struggling in the, on the defensive side, but I wouldn't be surprised if they put Mikkel in there for Vince Dunn and let Gunnarsson play there. And then when Bortuzzo comes back, you're looking at the lefty-righty matchup. They like those lefty-righties, but to answer your question, I... There will be times where Mikola can play on the right side for the Blues, but they'd use the the, the veteran defenseman on the right side over the left side gotcha. moving forward. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service tax line for questions and answers from the 314. Guys, I just saw that Mizzou hired a new defensive coordinator. He's Steve Wilkes from the NFL. What do you think about this hire for Mizzou? So Hit me with it, BK. I will start with this. I'm really intrigued by it. It's an interesting hire because he hasn't coached college football in 15 years. He spent the last 15 years in the NFL, and it's interesting to me that he is getting back into the college game. Now, there isn't there is a clear connection between he and Eli Drinkwitz. Steve Wilkes played at App State. He played there in the late 80s, so it's been a minute. But Eli Drinkwitz coached there last year, so I think that's where the connection is. You, like, really tied those together, didn't you? Well, I mean, there's a lot of Mizzou players that haven't played at Mizzou right. for 30 years. But if you coach a, a, even a season at Mizzou, you're going to see them around you're campus. You're going to tie right? it, right? So I'm, I'm assuming that's where the connection comes in. He's been a really good NFL coach. He was a defensive backs coach under Ron Rivera for about a decade, both in he was in Chicago with the Chargers and then over in Carolina. He ended up being the Cardinals head coach in 2018. He was the Browns defensive coordinator in 2019 and a disastrous Ooh. season for the Browns. But that was everything about that team was a nightmare. I think it could be a really good hire. It has the potential to be a tremendous hire for them. I've got some reservations just because he's been away from the college game for so long and the recruiting is what matters so much. But right. as a coach, I have no questions about him as a coach. Well, let me ask you this, though, because wasn't this the same scenario with Derek Dooley on the offensive coordinator side? Like he had Dooley had never called plays before in his entire career. He had never called plays, but he was in the NFL. And uh -huh. so, so that's the difference, though. Like Wilkes is he's been a head coach. He's been the defense. He's called the plays. So there are much different scenarios than comparing the Dooley of the NFL compared to this Wilkes with the NFL. Absolutely. Dooley was a failed coach at Tennessee and had never called plays in his life. And his entire job at Mizzou was to call plays. Like that, You handed him a job that he had never done previously. With a defensive coach. Yeah, <laughs> and he was in charge of the offense. So there was some serious questions about whether or not that could work. Steve Wilkes has done this job before not done it in college of late but he did it in the nfl so i don't have any questions about that i like I, it i do hope that he's a good recruiter and that's going to be a big part of this how is he on the recruiting trail but it seems like based on everything we've heard his, his players loved him in the nfl so that that should help him i would imagine so that it's going to be interesting to watch I'll, I'll try to see if we could get in contact with ron rivera um, I'd love to talk with him like about the former NFL head coach, current NFL head Are coach, Washington. Yeah, I'll, I'll reach out to Washington to see if we could talk with him. You about You have that. those connections? 
I've talked with Ron once, and he's a great guy. All so right. I think we could probably get him. Pull one. this we'll off, BK. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line for questions and answers. Uh, let's get to this one from the 573. Guys, who has the better chance of breaking out in the Cardinals outfield next year? Harrison Bader or Tyler O'Neill? Had to answer that name, didn't you? Your I guy. I didn't do it. That is from the text line. Your guy, Harrison Bader. Um, So breaking out meaning turning himself into an everyday player. Right? Am I understanding that correctly? I mean, you could take it however you want, but yeah, let's go with that. Okay. Becoming an everyday player that is a plus player for the Cardinals. Having them out there is a net positive for the Cardinals. I think I'm going to say Tyler O'Neill, just because of the uncertainty. Uh, we've seen consistently of Harrison Bader now of a everyday player, and we know the split differences now. We've seen consistency from Tyler O'Neill, and we also know the differences, but consistency is different with those two and after hearing John Mosley speak about that and talk about how you want to be certain with these players now I I truly feel like Tyler O'Neill is going to get a shot and I feel like if he gets that shot he might turn himself into you know look he's not going to be a star he's not going to be a mainstay in the middle of your batting order but I think with a continued opportunity Tyler O'Neill could turn himself into an asset for this Cardinals team so I'll go with number uh, 41 the Canadian Hulkster I like to call him you know what's funny oh I'm with you I actually agree with you I think we kind of know what Harrison Bader is you're going against your hundred million dollar man <laughs> stop that <laughs> um, I I think we know what Harrison Bader is now the disagreement that we have and that I have with some of the listeners is what that means Um, Now, I think Harrison Bader, as is, is a solid player who you'd like to have on your roster. The problem is he's being it's the Peter principle. He's been promoted one step too high. Yeah, I think Tyler O'Neill has a better potential because I think Tyler O'Neill can be a guy that hits against whoever is on the mound, whether it be righty, lefty, it doesn't much matter. And the power plays. He's got more power as a raw tool than Harrison Bader ever has or will have. So I'll go Tyler O'Neill on this question, even though I know that I am the president of the Harrison Bader. Amen to that. That's Alex Ferrario. I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. Coming up next, let's stick with the Cardinals. Brad Thompson said something fascinating yesterday on the fast lane. You're agreeing with him this time? I think I am, actually. He talked about who he believes is the most important Cardinal for 2021 and beyond. I'll let you hear who he said and why I actually agree with him this time around. We'll talk about it coming up next on 101 ESPN. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. Alex Ferrario, I'm Brandon Kylie. So I was listening to the fast lane yesterday on my way home, and I thought Brad Thompson made a tremendous point. I mean, a really good point. There's a first time BT. I thought it was a really good point. And so we're thinking about the Cardinals for next season and beyond. We're talking so much about the free agent market. And yesterday we came up with this wild idea to ask the audience, you know, if you had $150 million to spend, who would you spend it on? Right. Mm -hmm. We're getting all excited about all these different things. And Brad Thompson said what I think boils everything that the Cardinals are trying to figure out right now into one simple statement. Here's what Brad Thompson had to say yesterday about the most important Cardinal for 2021 and beyond. To me, the most important, the single most important player for the St. Louis Cardinals next year and building towards the future, the next like three, four years, is Paul DeYoung. 
Paul DeYoung has to make those strides and become a cornerstone guy for you. He doesn't have to be your three-hole hitter. He's better than uh, Goldie. But he's got to be like a, a – you know what he is consistently because who – what, what does the free agent class look like next year? It's all shortstops, right? It's a ton of different guys. So if you're thinking, all right, well, we can get one of those guys potentially. Maybe we move this guy over to third base, move the young. What do we do with the kid? We got Nolan Gorman now. Do we make some different moves? To me, there's a lot hinging on what Paul DeYoung ends up being. I think that is a tremendous point. I think you nailed it. And if you're looking for any one player – that can determine what the future looks like for the Cardinals. And I know this is putting a lot on one guy, but I really do think it is Paul DeYoung because when he first broke into the majors as a 23-year-old shortstop who, let's be honest, we hadn't we didn't really see this coming from him. He was a, a decent prospect, but it wasn't like he was Dylan Carlson who came up and we were all like ready to put him into Canton the moment that he arrived. Or, right. Excuse me, to put him into Cooperstone. Well, to rather. be fair, we I'm did these all confused. To anyway. be fair, we did all of that with Aledmus Diaz to sure. that first season. So. so we didn't put him immediately into Cooperstown whenever he arrived in the big leagues. But in his first hundred games, he had. 25 homers, 25 doubles, had an 857 OPS and looked like he was going to take the league by storm. And it was like, oh, do the Cardinals have their answer at shortstop? He's been really good defensively the entire time, has a 30 home run season in 2019. But last year was disappointing. And how much of that was related to COVID? How much of that was him taking a step back at the plate? It's hard to say. It's hard to know for sure. It's also hard to know. It's just a weird year. Yeah. How much of it, maybe he would have broken through in the second half, right? But that is something that we need to see from him this year. We've talked a lot about how great first halves, horrible second halves so far in his career, and it's early. He needs to have a full season of being a really productive major league shortstop at the plate. We know he can play defensively. We need to see it cons- consistently at the plate. And if he does, maybe it does change a little bit what the Cardinals need going into next offseason. I would still have a superstar at the top of my list. And there just so happens that most of those guys play shortstop next year. Maybe it's a superstar third baseman that's out in Colorado. Absolutely. But it could be that, right? It could be instead of finding that next shortstop, maybe you do shift gears and you look for whether it be a third baseman like Nolan Arenado, or you look to the outfield. Maybe somebody becomes available that you're not seeing right now. It, It makes it a little easier for you to be flexible going into next offseason, as opposed to being pigeonholed into finding somebody that can be that star at that particular position. Yeah, I think we can all agree that next offseason, you're looking at the holes on this team of right now, third base, an outfield position, and I guess whatever happens in the catcher position with Yachty. But if Paul DeYoung turns into, let's say, I don't know, a 250 batting average guy, or maybe less than that, and a 15 home run hitter, that changes a lot for you because now you don't have enough. The only middle of the order presence you have is Paul Goldschmidt. So my question to the, to you then BK, because I know you've talked a lot about Paul DeYoung in the past and saying that right now he's not a middle of the order bat for you. He's deeper down into that batting order. What's consistently look consistency look like? Because I don't know if it's a 30 home run every season player for Paul DeYoung. Would people be happy with a guy who hits I don't know, somewhere around 270 and gives you 20 to 25 home runs consistently every season. He needs an 800 OPS. 
That's what I want to see out of him, an 800 OPS. So, like, in year one, he doesn't need to match those numbers again. For me, he he that season— I think that was an anomaly, too. Yeah, he had a 285 batting average that year and slogged over 500. That's—it's just unlikely to be able to be repeated. But if he's around, like, 450, 470 in terms of his slugging percentage, and he's around that 350-ish— on base percentage, maybe a little bit below that because he's not a guy that takes a ton of walks. Yeah, that's kind of where I want to see Paul DeYoung moving forward, and that's probably a guy that's hitting twenty-five home runs. Yeah, I want to see him hit some more doubles, like shoot the gaps a little bit more. That's something that I would like to see out of out of him moving forward. But yeah, play great defense at second at shortstop. Mm-hmm. Get around that eight hundred OPS or so, and if you can do that, that means you can be a really quality. Five hole hitter, six hole hitter. That's where I was going. He's. I don't think he's a cleanup hitter. No, I don't think he's going to be a cleanup. And and I think that's okay. I think if Paul DeYoung can be an everyday five hole hitter and push for a cleanup spot, that's what the Cardinals need. Because then I feel that you go into the next off season and you isolate one position. It's third base and finding that cleanup hitter. Because what that does is it makes everything else better. Because then your lineup, like we've talked about, is a Tommy Edmond leading off, a Dylan Carlson in your two-hole, a Paul Goldschmidt. If Paul DeYoung's hitting five, and then you insert six, seven, eight, nine from there, that four-hole becomes the open spot. But if Paul DeYoung can't hit like a five-hole hitter and turns into a seven-hole hitter, I know we got a lot of numbers flying around here, yeah. but then that does two things you are now missing that cleanup hitter and you are missing the five hole hitter. And I think that is a bigger gap that the Cardinals can't fill compared to going into an off season and having one position to look at. Yeah. I mean, if you just look at their order right now, the guys that I, I feel really good about moving forward, I feel pretty good about Dylan Carlson as a, a future two hole hitter. I feel really good about Paul Goldschmidt being your three hole hitter. I think Paul DeYoung, if he is able to put together a good season this year is a five hole hitter. Okay, so you have three of your top five in the order figured out right now. You feel you feel pretty good about as long as they have solid seasons. Mm-hmm. The problem is, who's leading off for you? As of today, who who's leading off for the St. Louis Cardinals? It's probably Tommy Edmond. Yeah, I, I mean, would think. I mean, right now, I, I think you have a, a group of four guys that you're going to look at at spring training. Tommy Edmond being the leading candidate. You're going to have Matt Carpenter. You're going to have Dexter Fowler. But, uh, Carpenter is not a future. So Oh, so we're talking future. We're not now talking this into the future. Yeah. I think it's Tommy Edmond and or Dylan Carlson. I think that's what you're looking at right now. Okay. And if if Carlson becomes your leadoff hitter, you've got to figure out what you're doing in that two hole. But right. So you've got one of those spots figured out with, with Carlson. So you need some positive answers this year on Tommy Edmond as well. And then we go back to the cleanup. And honestly, Paul Goldschmidt could be your cleanup hitter. There's no reason why he couldn't. If you end up with somebody that profiles better as a three-hole hitter and yeah. Goldie moves down They're to They're interchangeable. Four, it doesn't matter. Basically, you need two more options in the top of your order right now. You're missing two bats. One guy that gets on base at a really high clip, preferably with some speed, but... Even if he doesn't, I, I personally don't care too much, but it helps if he's got a little speed to put at the top of your order. And then you need another guy that has a decent on-base percentage and slugs well. Yeah. If you can get those two things, you feel really good about where the Cardinals are offensively. You got to get that superstar. That's the guy that hits in the middle of your order. And you got to be able to find out who that guy is that's going to bat uh, lead off for you. And that is a lot easier to find. Like For instance, Andrew Benintendi, who we talked about yesterday, I don't know if they're going to trade for him or not this offseason. I would guess they're probably not going to. 
But guys like that are available every year, mm-hmm. whether it be via trade or in free agency. Tommy LaStella is a guy out there right now. Um, you can find guys like that for four or five million bucks. And even if it's a one year stopgap, you could find those guys out there. They're they're pretty cheap, reasonable, affordable deals. and You can get them on a one year contract. Right. The middle of the order bat is what this team has been missing. It's what this team continues to be missing. And it's what this team has the biggest issue with developing and acquiring. So that is where this Paul DeYoung conversation goes, which is I don't think even if he does reach the pinnacle this season, like Brad Thompson's hoping for and that we're all hoping for, I still wouldn't feel comfortable counting on him as your cleanup hitter. No, I, I I don't think I've ever been comfortable counting on him as your cleanup hitter. I think that's always been the gaping hole by this team is they need somebody that can protect a Paul Goldschmidt so that they're not pitching around him because from there, I think things really fall off the rockers from that um, perspective. But again, like I, I, it puts them into the conversation rather than where they weren't if you do add that position player. And I think from there you can build with that. Now, the other question comes with Nolan Gorman. What does he profile as? Because when we talked to JJ Cooper from baseball America earlier this week, he talked about how this guy's going to give you a lot of pop. You just don't know what that batting average is going to look like. And the on base percentage is going to look like because of the strikeout ratio. He's young. He's going to grow. But if this guy, I don't know if he's ever going to be a cleanup hitter for you. It doesn't sound like that. But if this guy can profile as a five-hole hitter, it adds depth to your batting order. It adds depth to your bench. But I still think it all comes back to that cleanup hitter or the three-hole hitter because from there, I think you can build a contender around that. You just need that protection. Yeah, and I just – I know a lot of people like looking to the future and assuming that a guy is going to take a position – I'm not comfortable doing that with Nolan Gorman because he does profile as somebody who might take a little bit of time especially at the big league level to get comfortable, to get acclimated. And there are questions about his defense. I mean, when we, whenever we talk to any of these guys, whether it be baseball America or whoever that are scouts that have looked at him, that have seen him play, they'll say, Hey, listen, we're not sure. Third base, first base DH. We're not sure totally where he profiles moving forward. You're not making decisions now mm-hmm. based on what you believe Nolan Gorman will be two, three, four years from now. Right. You, you make decisions then based on what Nolan Gorman is at that point in time, right? So if Gorman ends up being a stud at third, well, you figured it out. Yeah. And now whether he be at third or elsewhere, you've got you've got it. And it gives you having options. too many good players right. out of position is a good problem. It to gives have. you options to do what you've done in the past and move assets elsewhere to upgrade in other areas, right? Like if you look at those early 2000 eras you were so good in so many positions that you could move assets in your prospect system to go out there and bring something in and I think that's what the Cardinals want to get back to the problem is they've just been kind of circling this same mid-tier a little bit above average prospects that never have turned into it so you can't move forward with it that's Alex Ferrario I'm Brandon Kylie. it is 12 13 your time check brought to you by Clarkson Jewelers an officially licensed Rolex jeweler 65780 is the air comfort service tax line let's play a game of bet it or forget it coming up next on 101 ESPN this is the BK and Ferrario podcast now here's BK and Ferrario is the air comfort service tax line if you've got a bet it or forget it for us let's start with this 
Bet it or forget it, Alex Ferrario. The issue of winning back-to-back games in these two-game NHL series is going to sustain over the long haul this year. I think it is. I mean, again, if you look at it, and I haven't looked at what the rest of the teams have done, but after the first two games of the season, there were six teams that swept their first series, and that has changed significantly. Some of those other six teams haven't swept their next series. Now, some of them haven't even played their next series. I mean, Washington right now had to put some players on COVID list. Dallas hasn't started their games, but I'm going to stick with this. I think this is going to be a storyline throughout the season. It is going to be a rarity of a team that is just consistently picking up sweeps because teams will prep correctly and teams will kind of know what to expect and set their game standards to what they need to be like we've seen San Jose and Colorado do. This is going to be an easy thing. So I think this is going to be the norm, at least in the West division when it comes to series overall. I'm totally with you. I think this is going to be something that we need to continue watching throughout the season. And full credit to you. You called this very early on that you thought this was going to be a problem for the Blues and for teams around the league. That winning these back-to-back games is going to be really tough. Yeah. That second game, that, uh, that opponent comes out fighting fighting their asses off and we saw that last night especially in that third period even the first period i mean san jose came out flying and you had to weather the storm and in that third period the blues really lacked energy and i don't know if that's because they had the first period second period where they sustained and they were able to kind of fight off the sharks but this is something that is definitely going to be worth monitoring over the course of the year i'm going to be interested as we get a month into the season, I think we'll have enough of a sample size to say yeah. whether or not this is a, a thing or if it's just something that's happening to the Blues. But it's definitely worth monitoring for the near future. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line for better to forget it. Better to forget it. If the Texans trade Deshaun Watson this offseason, they will get at least four first round picks in return. Dang, four first round picks. The only way I see that happening is if it's to a team that is already set up for the next five to six years with a roster. What if I said at least three first round picks and a very recent first round quarterback? Then I would say I, I would mend the question. I would way. bet that because I'm thinking of a team like the Miami Dolphins, mm-hmm. and I'm assuming that's kind of where you're at as well. And if I'm the Miami Dolphins, my defense is one of the best in the leagues right now, at least from what we've seen. The offense needs a little help, need a little help at receiver, but I think you can upgrade that throughout free agency. Offensive line seems to need a little help, but it's going to be better than what it was in Houston for Deshaun. So yeah, I would say I would bet that. If it's three first-round picks and a guy like Tua who was just selected and has a bright future, I would bet that that's going to be the the haul to bring in a Deshaun Watson. I think so, too. I saw a report the other night that and this came from Albert Breer of Sports Illustrated. Um, he basically wrote that the only comparison that he can find for Deshaun Watson is Jay Cutler. <laughs> <laughs> and he was talking about in terms of the trade, right? And to be fair to him, and I'm going to say this, this is probably a crap sandwich. <laughs> to be fair to Albert Breer, it's really hard to find any sort of comparison to a 25-year-old quarterback in his prime getting traded. Okay. And so I could see how you end up with Cutler because at least he was young. But Jay Cutler was not comparable to what Deshaun Watson is right now. Okay, finish off the crap sandwich. 
it's absurd to compare the two. Okay, there we go. It's, it's absolutely <laughs> absurd to compare these two. Jay Cutler, the year he was traded by the Broncos, threw 25 touchdowns and 18 interceptions. Deshaun Watson threw 33 touchdowns and seven picks last year. <laughs> Watson is inarguably, in my opinion, a top five quarterback in the league. They sound like the same guy to me. I never viewed Jay Cutler as a top five quarterback in the league. And so I think it's probably going to take around that three firsts plus a quarterback. I know there will be some that push back against it, but if you're not giving me that much, then I'm not trading Deshaun Watson. Like, sorry, you can't have him then. Right. And if you look at some of the trades that player or teams make to trade up in the draft, they're giving up multiple first round picks. You look at the um, trade for Khalil Mack. That took two firsts. Jalen Ramsey, two firsts there as well. These are defensive players. I'm telling you, you get a quarterback, a star quarterback in his prime already signed long term. Yeah, you're going to have to give up a ton for the right to be able to have that player on your team. Let me ask you this, MBK. Better to forget it. Watson's top destination is the Indianapolis Colts because I have heard get up. I have heard Stephen A. Smith. I have heard Colin Cowherd. Like I'm hearing so many people say this is the destination that it's going to happen if it happens. Is trading the Colts. the Colts is trading in the division a thing? It could be if they give up a ton, but that. They have a 21st overall pick. I don't think that's enough to lead. And, and if they get Watson, I would imagine they're going to be picking around there again I, next year. I'm just amazed that I don't a team. Think they have a capital. Uh, why would a team even consider that? I'm just putting it into perspective for hockey for me because, of course, I pre and post for hockey. The Winnipeg Jets would never trade Patrick Line to the St. Louis Blues, no matter what you're offering them. Because you're not going to trade the guy to the division where you're going to have to see them so many times who could determine your postseason opportunities like if i'm the if i'm the texans i'm trading him to the nfc and that's it maybe i would consider the an afc team that's not in my division that is going to like give me you know like a king's ransom like highway robbery but i'm not going to trade him to that team because i'd rather put him in a conference that i'm not going to see him i know that this is not me breaking any news other people have talked about this as well but the two teams that make the most sense since day one are the Jets and the Dolphins. The Dolphins have two first round picks this year. They have two second round picks as well. They have their own picks in 2022. Uh, the Dolphins, that is. The Jets have two first round picks this year. They have two first round picks next year. If I am the Texans, those are the two teams that I'm talking to to try to yeah. get the bidding up, right? Because with the Dolphins, you can also ask for Tua. So you've got a young quarterback that could come back and return. The Jets, if you want him, you could take on Sam Darnold. And with both of those teams, you're picking either second or third in the draft. So even if they didn't want Tua or Darnold, mm -hmm. they could still end up taking their next franchise quarterback at the second or, or third overall pick. Yeah. If they wanted to, they could trade those picks down, too, if they like Tua or Darnold. Okay, we'll take the second pick. We're going to trade down to like 10 and just have this massive draft haul if I'm the Texans. Yeah. I think those are the only two that I would really Makes give sense. serious consideration to if I'm them. 65780 is the air comfort service text line for bet it or forget it. Bet it or forget it, guys. We will see over 1,100 passing yards this weekend. That's really interesting. Okay, so you got four quarterbacks. So basically, oh, I'm betting this. I only have to get 300, 300 yards for each quarterback. I'm absolutely betting this. 300 yards for each quarterback? Yeah. Four quarterbacks, 300 yards each. That'd be 1,200 yards over oh, the weekend. I'm yeah, taking the, the only oh, one. That, a massive over. The only one that I feel like may not hit that is Tom Brady. 
And I feel like he probably yeah. will. I think these could be shootouts. God, the odds for that would probably be incredible, too. Oh, yeah, I'm betting this one because yeah. you're making cash on this. And I feel like this is all but the determined thing. I'm I'm definitely betting this. Many, I think that you're going to see a ton of yards this week. Better to forget it, PK. We see at least three overs hit this weekend. Three overs in terms of the passing yard totals? No, in terms of the point spread. There's only two games. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm thinking that there was four games still. <laughs> there were four quarterbacks, two games. That makes a lot more sense. Kids, this is why you don't do like, math what? on the what? air. Okay. I'm not even going to play that over under. You know, PK, shame on you for putting me in that position. Shame on you for saying the number four and, and, and altering my, my brain there. 65780 is the air comfort service text line for bet it yes, or forget Ferrario it. Ferrario is drunk. I'm sorry. Last one here. Bet it or forget it, guys. Philip Rivers will be a future Hall of Famer. Bet it. Uh, I don't even really understand the argument with this. I mean, look. I understand he doesn't have Super Bowls, but he's got statistics that there are certain quarterbacks that are in the Hall of Fame, if I'm not mistaken, like a Warren Moon in terms of passing yards and touchdowns. Phillip Rivers has played a Hall of Fame career. It's just unfortunate that he's never had the teams to get to the Super Bowl. Plus, he's always had to get through Tom Brady and a Peyton Manning, and it just hasn't worked out. So, you know, I'm the biggest Phillip Rivers fan there is, and I think he should be a Hall of Famer. That being said, it is a difficult, in some ways, difficult case to be made because he never won an MVP. Because guys like Dan Fouts, you can point to the MVP, right? Uh, Dan Marino, you can point to the MVP for him. He never got one. And I'm not sure that at any point in his career, and this is a little bit damning for Phillip Rivers. And again, I'm a fan of him. I don't know that he was ever considered to be a top three quarterback in the league at any given point in time, like in any individual season. I don't know that you would have said he was one of the three best quarterbacks in the league. Who out, who who beat him, though, in terms of those MVPs? Because wasn't it Brady and Manning? Yeah, and, and, and Breeze and Rodgers. I mean, you, you have quite a few guys that, ha- that had opportunities. How many of years did he have LT Warner. on his team? Uh, the early 2000s. So it like wasn't that five, many? Six, because like he that. never really had players that, like, stole the show right with philip i mean keenan allen gates was awesome keenan allen he's he's had some pretty good weapons so i mean i'm just i'm thinking like did he have guys that that stole the show from him like oh you're thinking philip rivers but bah you know this guy i mean right it's kind of like what i'm trying to think of the comp right now but i mean it's kind of like with josh allen and stefan diggs josh allen's incredible but you look at stefan diggs and you say man but he's playing even better with the moves that he's making on the field yeah, I mean, Antonio Gates is a future Hall of Famer. LaDainian Tomlinson's a future Hall of Famer. He's had some really good weapons. I, I see what you're getting at there. I would be in favor of it. I think he's had a Hall of Fame career, but there's just eventually yeah. you get to the point where there's arguments. Are we going to have Brady, Manning, the other Manning, even though I don't <laughs> think he should be? Rodgers, Breeze, Ben, Warner, Rivers, Russ, Mahomes, Favre, Watson potentially on that path. I- it's going to take How some time. How many quarterbacks from this era yeah. are we going to put into the Hall of Fame? You know, eventually you've got to you've got to set the the limit somewhere, right. and I wonder if that limit gets put right Boy, in front of Philip Rivers. That sucks too for Philip if he doesn't get it just because of that reason. Mm-hmm. He's Alex Ferrario. I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. Coming up next, let's talk with our guy Joey Vitale. What did he see from the Blues last night? What do they need to fix when it comes to not only the penalty kill, the power play, special teams are a problem, 
The bigger problem is that they're having to play so much special teams. We'll talk to Joey Vitale about that coming up next on 101 ESPN. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. to the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line. Happy to be joined by our guy, Joey Vitale, Blues Analyst for 101 ESPN. Joey, what happened last night, man? Seven more penalties? What's going on with this team? Thanks for hopping on with us today, by the way. Hey, BK, I'm doing good. Yeah, last night's game, that was a that was a tough one to break down. I even I told Curbs after we went off the airwaves last night and we kind of were wrapping it up and Curbs was sticking around for the fourth period with Alex. I wasn't planning on sticking around for the fourth period. Appreciate I even that, said, Joe. Yeah, sorry about that. Uh, but I said, uh, don't, don't don't get in a foxhole with me. <laughs> I, I said to Curve, I said, man, I, I just can't break this one down here tonight. It was, the game was kind of a boring game in my mind. It was, wasn't was a lot of flash or flair to it from either side. I think both teams played strong defensively. Uh, both goaltenders were uh, superb, obviously. But it really didn't have any momentum shifts, I don't think. There weren't any like big plays where, like, wow, that that's going to turn the point in the game. It was just kind of a vanilla game. You know, I think that the St. Louis Blues were, were still waiting for a couple of the superstars to kind of emerge in this lineup, and I think we're kind of patiently waiting for that. And maybe that's why it felt a little vanilla to me. I don't know. It just it was a hard one to break down, and it's unfortunate because because those points are so valuable as we know this year. And unfortunately for the Blues, they lost that one. So, Joe, take our take our listeners, and frankly, take BK and I into into what happens after a post game press conference like we heard from Craig Berube last night, where you know he basically called out a teammate and said, "Guys, they're just not skating. They're not uh, they're not putting the effort out there." What is being said in the locker room before or after Craig Berube says that to the media? Well, for 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 certain, it's a it's a shout out and it's a call out to some of the players and, and listen, these players know who they are. And I think Craig Berube did it in a responsible way. You know, we've seen it with the Dallas stars, whether they're calling out Tyler Sagan or Jamie Ben, we, 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 we do see it occasionally where a coach will verbally attack and call out a player individually. I, I never thought that was a productive way to do it. Yeah. I think there has to be a balance. And I think Craig Berube's found that balance. And, 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 I'm, and I applaud him for the way he did it because uh, he said, what he said about certain players and, and those players know who they are. And I think that for, for a locker room and for these players individually, you know, when you're not playing good, right? Everyone knows that. And when you hear a message like that and you look at the Twitter or the Instagram, and you see that, that comment and it's posted and you're going to read it, you know, you're not playing well, but now you know that the coach knows that you're not playing well. And you were always kind of in that speculation zone where, you know, I'm doing some good things, and maybe maybe they don't really notice it, but now they notice it. And then that that's kind of an impactful thing for a player where they know they're not playing great, and now they know the coaches aren't, and now they know they're taking it a step further and actually calling them out to the public, which they didn't need to do. But why did he do it? He did it just to give a little kick in the old, old rear end for some of these players. So I, I do think that it was a, a productive do, productive job in, in the way he did it and handled it, and, and I, I expect these Blues players to fully respond uh, from here on out. Joey, the thing that I think – if I had to play armchair psychologist in a way, I would imagine what frustrates Barubi most is that it's not like the Blues are playing really poorly right now. Now, they, they're making horrible mistakes, and you're seeing that mostly with the penalties and then the power. The special teams haven't come around yet, but in five-on-five, five, they've, they've mostly been pretty good so far this year. Do you think that's kind of what's showing through there is the, the frustration of, hey, if, if we can get this stuff kind of figured out, our team is good. We just haven't gotten there yet. 
Yeah, I think the frustration probably for the coach and some of these players is that your expectations this year are very high, right? I mean, you have a, a team that has been assembled that is on paper one of the best teams in the league. You have a championship pedigree. You have guys in that room that have won a cup that understand what it is to win a Stanley Cup. And not even the Blues players, but look at Crew, who's been there twice. Uh, Kyle Clifford, who's now won two Stanley Cups. You have you have players in that room uh, that are that are ready for excellence, right? And I, I think that this coach and this team, and this city, and everyone involved with this organization had very high expectations coming into the season. Now, were the expectations um, right, wrong, or right in, in the middle? Well, we don't know, right? Because there are expectations, of course. But I think that's where the frustration is. Because so, you look at the season, we played four games. We've grabbed three points out of four games. If you're the Ottawa Senators, you'd think you won the Stanley Cup. But we're not the Ottawa Senators. We're the same with Blues. <laughs> so it's almost like uh, I think a lot of the frustration is, uh, oh, we should be 4-0. But to me, this is a, this is a difficult league. So I, I kind of question where that frustration is coming from. I know the Blues have an identity, and they want to get to that quickly. But listen, this is still the start of a year, and I know you can't too, fall too far behind. But you also can't cheat time. It's going to take a little bit of time. It's going to take some time for these new players to, to get adjusted. I think Tory Krug's still trying to feel his way through uh, his comfort level to get back to where he can play and be an elite player. I think it's starting to come with Mike Hoffman, right? So it is going to take a little bit of time. It's going to take a while for, for these guys to get moving in the right direction. But the good thing, good news, the good news is, and I said this on the broadcast last night, while they're kind of in this feeling out process and getting used to things and kind of getting up to speed with the game and, and how to be competitive again, they're still grabbing points, guys. Yeah. And again, three points out of four games, that, that's really good. And they, by, by no stretch of the imagination, have started out 0-4. And it's, it's, it's no reason to get, uh, to, I guess, to, to, to get ahead of yourselves and to think that we're in a very bad spot, because we're really not. It's kind of what we saw last season at the beginning of the year, right, Joe? Like post-Stanley Cup, you know, they kind of were a 500 hockey team, and then they started to pick it up. But what they were doing where they were still getting those points that put them in the position to pick up first place in their conference once the season went into a pause. But Joe, let me ask you about Mike Hoffman, because I think this is a guy that everyone is talking about right now. What are you seeing from him on the ice? Because for me, it just seems like he's still stuck in this Florida Panthers, Ottawa Senators style hockey and trying to figure out what this blues type of hockey is going to be. Maybe a little bit. I actually think he's been more competitive lately. I think that, I think that last night's game was probably his best game. And I really like him on that line with Ryan O'Reilly and David Perron. I, I think that goal a couple a couple games ago did wonders for him. It's going to get him a little bit of point energy now because he is a goal scorer. But last night's game, I thought that he had some really good shots on net. I thought he was kind of working with that O'Reilly and David Perron line pretty well. I think he was hanging on to pucks down low. I think he's starting to really understand what that Ryan O'Reilly and David uh, Perron combination is all about. And it's all about puck possession. Listen, he's not a big guy. But he's actually relatively very strong on the puck. He's got a good low center of gravity. He knows how to bend his knees and, and torque his weight and use his weight at the advantage. He has a lot of counter hits where if a defenseman bigger than him coming in, he'll actually step in the D-man just for a quick second, just to create a little bit of space for himself. He's a player that's really good in the corners in the sense that he gets off of the wall. A lot of players, when they're on the wall with the puck, they just kind of ride the wall and they're very easily checked. He steps about two feet off the wall. He gets a little bit of room for himself, so if he needs to spin out of things, he can. It gives him that that, that, that space. He kind of reminds me of, of maybe a little bit more of a season Robert Thomas, so maybe not quite that speed. But I, I really I have liked Mike Hoffman. I, I think he's been good. I think he's progressing fine. We knew it would be an adjustment. He played in, his, in the Eastern Conference his whole career. It's typically a, a bit of a softer league, more skilled, uh, kind of pond hockey style of hockey, where it's kind of free for all, a lot of skill and goals and pretty plays. But now he's coming back to the West. He knew it would be an adjustment. And listen, this guy's a true pro. 
and he's a very mature kid, and he understands what Blues hockey and Blues brand of hockey is all about, and he will get there. And I think that he he has to because he's going to be an unrestricted free agent again this coming summer. He's looking to get paid, and he's looking to do wonderful things here for this team and, and to contribute to hopefully a Stanley Cup run for the St. Louis Blues. But I, I've only seen one thing out of his game, and that, that to me is it's slowly trending upward. We're talking to Joey Vitale, Blues analyst for 101 ESPN here on BK and Ferrario. Joey, the Blues have a good problem right now with having almost too many centers, where you've got O'Reilly, Shin, Thomas, Bozak, Sonny. You've got a bunch of guys that can play the center position if needed. They also have a situation right now where Robert Thomas, because Shin is going back to center, is basically playing those third-line minutes again. I'm curious, whenever you've got guys like Bozak and Sanford, in your opinion, is that going to be able to get the most out of Robert Thomas this year? Because as I was watching last night, I almost had a craving for a a better scorer next to him. And that's not to take away from what Bozak and Sanford are. They're good players. But I just I want to see Robert Thomas with that elite player next to him. What do you make of where he's at right now, kind of on that third line as the center? Well, I mean, I don't know if it's a coincidence that, you know, Robert Thomas in his first couple of games was one of the best players on the ice. And then you look at last night, and was it one of his better games? Probably not in the season. Was he, was he, was he a good player? He was an effective player. He was fine. He wasn't out there all that much. We didn't call his name all that often. They didn't have a ton of scoring chances like he did in those first three games. And to me, BK, it's because now you're playing on that third line and you're playing bottom six minutes compared to top six minutes. It, it, it is a thing that Robert Thomas is better at when he is playing 18, 20, 22 minutes a night when he's playing that second line, he's anchoring between Cairo and maybe a Mike Hoffman. But now he's kind of gotten that. I'm not going to call it the motion because you had a slight Braden Shen to the middle there, but now because Braden Shen comes down to the middle, he has to bump down to that third line. So he's not going to be eating up as much ice time. It's, it is a big, it's a big transition for a kid. I know he's still playing center, but going from 22 minutes to 17 minutes or 20 minutes to 14 minutes, it has, an, it has an impact on a kid and how he can find that flow and find that rhythm into a game because I didn't think he was as effective last night playing that third line. But, but, but it is an issue. Is it a good issue? Yes, it's probably a good issue. Like you mentioned, we have a lot of centermen, and they got to figure out which one of these centermen can play wing. Now we saw Tyler Bozak on the wing last night. I thought he looked pretty good on the wing. So Craig Bruby in his mind, he's making a mental check that Tyler Bozak can probably be comfortable on the wing. You know, he's a little bit older. He's kind of later in his career. It's less skating on the wing. It's more just a, a mental game and a mindset and having good responsibilities and habits. Tyler Bozak's got all those things. So I think he'd be fine on the wing. You know, Braden Shen's a player that they tried on the wing with David Perron and Ryan O'Reilly to start the season. Heavy line. But you know what? You kind of lost Braden Shen. Braden Shen, he's a true centerman. He likes to play. He likes to play the middle. He's not going to get sour and bitter when he's on the wing, but he he enjoys playing the middle, and he's kind of got that free spirit about him where he likes to run and gun. He likes to be the rover. He likes to be the first guy back. He likes to finish hits and be the first four checker. So that's that freedom for Braden Shen is through the middle. Right, so you have a lot of wingers and centermen that are trying to figure out the mix and the mashing of it all. But you're right; you're, you're going to have to keep moving Robert Thomas down when you're healthy. Is it a problem? Yes, it's a problem, but it's also a good problem because, like I said, with a healthy group, you're still going to have a Jordan Cairo, Tyler Bozak, Zach Sanford. You're going to have a bunch of guys that are going to be kind of wheeling on that third line to kind of help Robert Thomas, hopefully fit in here and find a good role with this team. Joe, I'll tell you what hasn't been a problem, and it's been Jordan Bennington, and last night once again proved it, and I was looking at some of the numbers for Bennington this season because I know people will look at just his save percentage or his goals against and say, well, he hasn't been that great, but if you think about it, in the first period in the four games that he's played this season, he's only allowed one even strength goal, stopped 35 of 36 shots, 
And in the third period, he's only allowed one even strength goal step, 38 of 39 shots. I mean, he has been the savior for the St. Louis Blues, it feels like. Well, I, I, listen, I don't think we have three points out of four games if it weren't for him. Last night's game, let's just take that for an example. You know, one-to-one game. I thought San Jose outplayed the Blues in the third period. I thought they were out hustling. They were winning puck battles. Logan Couture had a point fling shot late in the third. I think it was Sorensen who was on the back door. Timo Meyer had a wraparound on the power play. Uh, the Blues were scrambling on that on that PK late in that game. Colton Pareko had a couple big blocks. But blocked he it with his Jordan, face. Blocked it with his face. But Jordan Bennington, was, he stood tall. So you can you can certainly look at one angle where has Jordan Bennington been letting up a lot of goals, especially on the on the power play. Yes, he has. But at the same time, 5-on-5, five five, he's been great. And he's also had great spurts where he's been bailing out his team. So, to me, I, I think he's been fine. I really do. I think that the PK has been so sour in front of him that it's really kind of done nothing nothing to help him on that special teams area. But 5-on-5, five five, I liked him. I liked his confidence. I liked the way he's moving and shifting. He's on top of his crease. Some of those penalty shots last night, it was kind of that old Jordan Binnington-esque kind of style where he almost goes up to the hash marks, and again, he works his way back to match the speed of the shooter. Those little tendencies and habits that we've grown to love over the last two seasons, I've seen them. I, you know, Darren Pang and I were talking about him the other day. He's liked him in practice. He's got wonderful practice habits. He's a competitor. He wants to get out there. We haven't seen Billy Huso yet, and I don't know if we will see him for a while because Jordan Bennington wants that net. He commands that cage, and if Craig Berube's going to give him uh, the option to either play or sit out one to give Billy an option, he's going to play, and that's what you want to love. That's what you love as a goaltender on, on your hometown team of the St. Louis Blues. But, you know, it, it's early for everybody. It's early for him. But I certainly have to start the season. I really have liked this game. I know it sounds terrible because, you know, you look at the 8-0 stinker in Colorado. Right. You lose one in shootout last night. It, it sounds crazy to say you loved his game. Uh, but, but truthfully, I think when the special teams get cleaned up in front of them and this Blues team can kind of get back in line, we get this Ryan O'Reilly line going a little bit, start getting back to that four-checking style hockey the Blues are so good at, then you're going to start bailing out your goaltender because he's been doing a good job for you all year. Great. He's Joey Vitale, Blues analyst for 101 ESPN. You will hear him on the call coming up on Saturday night. Blues versus Kings as they get back into action. Joey, you're the best, man. Always appreciate the time. We'll talk with you again soon, my friend. Thanks, BK. Thanks, Alex. You guys have a great day. Absolutely. Same to you. That is Joey Vitale joining us here on 101 ESPN. We're going to get back into the Blues coming up at 1 o'clock because I, I want to get back into what we just talked about with Joey there. I thought he made some really good points about Robert Thomas. Yeah. The Blues have – it is a good problem to have. It's almost the opposite of what the Cardinals have. Where, like you're looking for middle-of-the-order hitters, right? The card, the Blues have the centers that – they were missing for years. We yeah. we were always saying, hey, if they could just have a number one center. It's been we, like 15 years since they've had that. And and now they have almost too many, mm-hmm. which is a good thing. Um, but it does now with Shin being back to the center, it, it puts Robert Thomas on that third line. And we said coming into the year, we really were excited about seeing Robert Thomas in the top six with a true scoring threat next to him. And watching that game last night, I just felt myself like, man, I... I know Robert Thomas isn't much of a shooter. We all know that. And he's not going to be, and I don't need him to be. But if he's going to be a distributor, I want him to be able to distribute to somebody that is going to put the puck in the net. And last night, I didn't feel like he had that at all times. He didn't really have a scoring threat next to him. So we'll get more into that coming up here in just about 15 minutes. Coming up next, though, let's dive into the junk drawer here on 101 ESPN. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. So, the Detroit Lions are a funny team, mostly because of their hiring. 
but yes, the Detroit Lions never win football games. They've gone 0-16 in recent years. Ding. They The last time that they won a playoff game was 1991. Ding. I was born in 1992. <laughs> it's been a minute for them. Ouch. Well, they just hired a gentleman by the name of Dan Campbell. Now, Dan Campbell is a former NFL tight end who was a blocking tight end. And if you ever look at a picture of Dan Campbell, he is the personification of football. Mm -hmm. The man doesn't have a neck. He's got a big old bulky <laughs> beard. He in some ways resembles the dude from the Big Lebowski. Which is fantastic. He had his introductory press conference. And keep in the back of your mind, this is a gentleman that was hired over Eric Bieniemy, who is more than qualified to be an NFL head coach. We'll set that aside for a moment. <laughs> Dan Campbell was at his introductory press conference today, and <laughs> it went about as you would expect for a former backup tight end to be introduced as a current NFL head coach. Here's what it sounded like. And when you knock us down, we're going to get up. And on the way up, we're going to bite a kneecap off. All right. And we're going to stand up. And then it's going to take two more shots to knock us down. All right. And on the way up, we're going to take your other kneecap and we're going to get up. And then it's going to take three shots to get us down. And when we do, we're going to take another hunk out of you before before long. We're going to be the last one standing. All right. That's going to be the mentality. Hold on. When did the NFL become a kneecapping league? When did the Italian mafia jump into this thing? I think my great grandfather got involved in the league. I had no idea. Why are we why are we kneecapping the opposition right now? I I don't even know what to say. I'll tell we're you what we need to say. We're going to take a hunk out of your knee. We're going to get up and on the way up we're going to bite a kneecap. We're going to bite a kneecap. That's what we're going to do. Where do, is that a is that a phrase? Ooh. I was unaware that this was even a thing. We're going to bite a kneecap? We're going to bite a kneecap, BK. I don't know if that's a phrase. I think he's legitimate meaning. Boys, when you're down in that scrum, when you're going after the football and there's a fumble, I want you to open up your mouth and I want you to bite one of those damn kneecaps. Bite it off. I does this not remind you of Will Ferrell from breaking or kicking and screaming when their their like huddle cheer is break someone's clavicle? Six five seven eight zero is the air comfort service text line from the three one four. Man, I love this guy. Go Lions! Hold on, I, I might have become a Lions. I fan. ask this in all seriousness: Do people like this stuff? All right, and on the way up, we're gonna take your other kneecap. <laughs> I. I don't know if Dan Campbell's going to be a good coach or not. He he very well maybe. Sounds like he's going to be on the defensive side. <laughs> but when when I hear this, I hear, "Oh god, this might be a disaster." Yeah. Like my initial reaction is, "Oh my god, what are the Lions doing?" Are there are there people out there because it's possible. Are there people out there that hear that and are like, "Oh, <laughs> Lions football baby, we're back." <laughs> when was the last coach that had success talking like this? Can, can, can you name the last head coach that, that talked about being physical and destroying the opposition and killing the opponent? What was the last time that guy had success? It, it's honestly a fair question. And listen, like some of this stuff, you hear it in hockey, right? You hear about the physicality yeah. and all of it. I get it. And I, I really do understand. I, I think you could say Joe Judge had a little bit of this in his press conference last year as well. Yeah. Um, I do... 
He seems likable. I'll say this. I would love to go out to a bar and have six or 12 beers with Dan Campbell. Well, hell yeah, before he bites your kneecap off, apparently. <laughs> I would love to hear. I think that man has some good stories. He's seen so. some things, I would imagine. You don't say you're going to bite someone's kneecap unless you've truly bitten someone's kneecap, right? I don't know how that works. Somebody says Rex Ryan. That's that's probably the one. And he because has he did have some success. Especially with, with the Jets. And, yeah, that's a good one. Uh, Mike Tomlin. Mike Tomlin doesn't talk like that, he though. He seems so low-key. Mike Tomlin is more, he is stern, um, and he'll get up in you a little bit, but I don't think he's typically the guy that is making comments like that. Yeah. Somebody said from the 618, guys, Greg Williams is updating his resume right now as he foams at the mouth about <laughs> needless violence in the football yeah, game. Yeah, I was going to say, Dan Campbell might uh, find himself a Greg Williams as a defensive <laughs> yeah. coordinator for this upcoming season. That that sounds about right. Well, BK, you know who's an intimidating dude I think we can all agree with is Marshawn Lynch, correct? Yes. Yes, the Super Bowl champion, of course, the former Seattle Seahawk. Well, how about intimidating with Marshawn Lynch on ice skates? Because the other day, he got on the ice with Akeem Alou, who is a, he's a minor league hockey player. He, Marshawn he, Lynch did? Marshawn Lynch did. I got some audio. You're going to love this. Oh, yeah. So basically, Akeem Alou is the guy who, who really started to bring kind of that, uh, the, the, the Black Lives Matter and the, he brought that to the hockey side okay. of things, and it started to really blow up from there. And he got Marshawn Lynch on the ice the other day. And Lynch is wearing a Colorado Avalanche practice. You take a listen to Marshawn on the ice. Come on, Sean. Come on, Sean. Come on, Sean. There you go. There you go. So he's giving him words of wisdom, and I'll, I'll retweet this on my Twitter account at Ferrario 101 ESPN. BK, Marshawn Lynch is stumbling. He is doing the windmill with his arms, trying to stay up on the ice. But then afterwards, he starts to get it down a little bit there, and he starts skating correctly. Okay. My question is, I think this guy might actually be a decent hockey player if you put him on the ice. Marshawn Lynch is one of my favorite human beings. Like, forget athletes, forget football players, forget specifying, like, what walk of life you're coming from Marshawn Lynch's subway commercials are incredible that in the video that he and Rob Gronkowski did with Conan O'Brien before the Super Bowl when oh, it was amazing when they Mortal played Kombat. Mortal Kombat <laughs> I have never laughed so hard in my life than that video take care of your chickens take care of your mentals he some of the quotes that he has had are just amazing and I saw a video the other day <laughs> this was in the uh right around Thanksgiving actually yeah Apparently, Marshawn at the time was just spending a bunch of his time in, in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. And there was somebody that videotaped him. He's standing out in the middle of the road, just handing out turkeys to people in their cars. He's just he's God bless such this an man. interesting dude. And he's he's the best endorser, I think, that you could have for your company because he's willing to do anything, including sitting in the inside of a massive tire uh -huh. like he did in the subway commercial that's out right now. It's incredible. It's amazing. But watch him on ice skates because I'll tell you what, maybe the next uh, St. Louis Blues power forward, Marshawn Lynch. I love it. With Alex Ferrario, I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. Speaking of the NFL, Adam Schefter is reporting that the Eagles have hired their next head coach. They are hiring Colts current offensive coordinator 
Nick Sirianni as their next head coach. He spent three seasons as a Chiefs assistant coach, five with the Chargers in the past three years. He was with the Colts, 39 years old. He is your next head coach of the Philadelphia Eagles, Nick Sirianni. So if I'm not mistaken, that leaves the Texans as the last job still remaining. And they had like four candidates for that head coaching job, if I remember correctly. Yeah. On, on Get Up, they were talking about it. The enemy is with the other two, and I don't know the names of the other two that they had spoke of, but there's two other guys with the enemy that are leading the race right now for that job. So Nick Sirianni gets the job in Philadelphia. His next question that he's got to answer is what's going to happen with Jalen Hurts and uh, Carson Wentz. So the Eagles head coaching job is officially filled and still no job for Eric Bieniemy. quite the offseason. Coming up next, the Blues have a good problem with the number of centers that they currently have on the roster. However, it is bringing up some questions about what the best way is to get the most out of Robert Thomas this season. We're going to talk about that coming up next on 101 ESPN. Before long, we're going to be the last one standing. All right, that's going to be the mentality. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. Putting Robert Thomas at center, you've got to get Shen to the wing and because you're not going to reduce Shen's minutes right now by putting him in the third-line role. So it, it, it just works better, I think, for the personalities and how guys want to play. With Alex Ferrario, I'm Brandon Kylie. That was Chris Kerber on with us yesterday talking about Braden Shin and how he prefers to play center, and that's what the Blues have decided to do moving forward, at least for the time being. Braden Chin is now your second line center. You got the Ryan O'Reilly line with Perron. And I thought Hoffman made a lot of sense to be added on the left wing there. That, that we can leave that there for now. <laughs> Shin Schwartz Kairou is the best line that this team has going right now. Yep. And then we get to the third line. And this is what I wanted to talk about with you, Alex, because I wanted to get your thoughts on it. Robert Thomas is now your third line center because Braden Shin has moved back to the center position. Right. You've got Tyler Bozak on one side. You've got Zach Sanford on the other is the way that they've kind of constructed this third line right now. I want more from that line. And the reason why I want more is because I think Robert Thomas showed us a little something early in this season that he was ready to take that next step, that he was prepared to be a top six forward. And I don't think the lack of production that we've seen the last couple of games is as much on him as it is the situation that he's currently in. I think Mm -hmm. he's the same player that he was the first couple of games. But he doesn't have the same players around him. And when you don't have that same scoring threat that you would if you were with Schwartz or Shin or Kairou or even with Perron or O'Reilly, whoever, it's harder for him as a pass first player to be able to show off his full skill set. So given where they are right now with him on that third line, how do they get the most out of Robert Thomas now? Well, the first way you get the most out of Robert Thomas is you keep it at five on five hockey. I mean, frankly, that's been the biggest issue. And when you look at his time on ice last night, he played what, 11 minutes? He played 11 minutes because a majority of that game was spent on the penalty kill. So you can't get him out there. You can't utilize him. Here's the biggest problem, though. As Curbs mentioned on that return, Braden Shen, who played the wing at the beginning of the season, he was on with O'Reilly and Perron. It wasn't working out. Braden Shen is at his best at the center position. That's the way it's always been since he's been in St. Louis. He's the better center. He's playing better than Robert Thomas right now, mostly because he's creating offense. Now, maybe that's because of the lines and the teammates that he's got on those lines in Cairo and Schwartz. And 
Robert Thomas, with no disrespect to his line mates, but a Tyler Bozak, a Zach Sanford, they're not creating the same amount of offense, and Hoffman and Thomas just aren't creating that chemistry. The best way to utilize Robert Thomas right now and create him, make him look like a top six centerman like he did in the first game of the season is to give him the proper line mates and give him the proper time to build chemistry with them, right? Like the line that was Robert Thomas and Jaden Schwartz and Oscar Sundquist, they looked awesome together. The line that was Robert Thomas, Zach Sanford, Tyler Bozak didn't look the same out there. So one, you got to keep it at even strength Two, you just got to give him some time to get some chemistry because Robert Thomas has never had a consistent line mate, right? Like in the postseason when they were awesome, it was Maroon and Bozak. But he was playing wing, and you had the responsibility and the defensive awareness like a Tyler Bozak to allow Robert Thomas to do what he does best. Now that changes a little bit. He has a lot more defensive responsibilities if he's a centerman and you got these two wingers with you. So it's a great problem to have. It's something the Blues have not had in a really long time in terms of depth down the middle. But don't look at him playing on the third line as being a third-line centerman. Look at the minutes, and right now the minutes are all that matter. Yeah, the minutes are what matter, but it also is about who's with him, yep. as you kind of mentioned there, right? And that's that's one thing that I have concerns about, I guess would be the way to put it. And listen, a lot of these concerns are alleviated once Vladimir Tarasenko Correct. returns, because when he's back, now you've got one more scoring threat to throw into the mix if everybody is still healthy at that point. And then you've probably, based on the way that things kind of shake out, you're either going to have Kairou Hoffman or Tarasenko on that third line. Okay, now things are kind of fixed, if mm-hmm. you will, there. But for the time being, you you need that punch on that line. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line from the 618. Guys, I hear what you're saying, but even in that first game, Thomas got both of his, his assists on goals by Sunquist, so he didn't necessarily have big goal scorers with him. You know what's one thing that I wouldn't be totally opposed to seeing? here for a little bit and I don't know if Burby would be interested in doing this or not I would kind of like to see Sonny on that third line I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility especially now that we've seen Sammy Blay play on that fourth line Um, you have Kyle Clifford look if you look at the ice time Zach Sanford only got about nine minutes last night some of that's because of the penalty kill and the power play but I think some of that also he was line juggling I mean we saw Sanford switch to the third line Hoffman moved to that line with O'Reilly and Perron it wouldn't surprise me if Samford becomes a healthy scratch or one of the other wingers becomes a healthy scratch. Your fourth line is a Sammy Blay and a Kyle Clifford with Ivan Barbashev. And Sonny gets that third line opportunity because, believe it or not, Oscar Sundquist can be a goal scorer. I was about to say, he's not the speed threat. No. But I, I don't even, I'm not so worried about the speed right now, right? Mike Hoffman, for example, is not exactly a speed player. You have plenty of speed on this team. He's a goal scorer. Mm -hmm. And same thing for David Perron. David Perron is not a fast individual necessarily, but he's crafty and he gets to the spots where he needs to be and he's able to put the puck in the net. That's all I care about right now is finding guys that when Robert Thomas is distributing to them because he's excellent in that way, they're able to actually be a threat to score. And I think Sunquist is more so that than right now at least – Tyler Bozak, and frankly, Zach Sanford. Sanford's shown this in the past, but so far this season, there's something that's missing with his game, and he might be able to get it back. I think he will get it back eventually. It's very, very early in the season, but that's something that I would kind of like to see them experiment with. Let's see what Sunquist looks like with a little bit more opportunities in that top nine uh, line. So I'm just writing these lines down while you're talking, BK, just because I'm curious of what it might look like. And again, I don't know if this is what it's going to be. They're off today. 
But what what are your thoughts on, on Hoffman, O'Reilly, and Perron as as a line? Mm-hmm. Of course, you're keeping Shen Schwartz and Jordan Cairo together. But then, like we just mentioned, what if an Oscar Sundquist is on that left side with a Robert Thomas and a Tyler Bozak, and then your fourth line consists of a Kyle Clifford, Ivan Barbashev, and a Sammy Blay? Yeah, you could also, if you wanted to keep Sanford in there, you could move Bozak down to that fourth line for a little bit. Yeah, he he can play there. You know, oh, yeah. he he's kind of like your Alex Steen this season, where he's more than he's capable. Everywhere. Mm-hmm. And if you wanted to put him in there, either for Clifford or Blay, you could do that with Barbashev then centering that line, or you could have Bozak centering the line. Either yeah. way, however you prefer to do it. You've got some flexibility there depending upon if you want to keep Sanford in the lineup or not. Yeah, and here's but it really a, depends on him, how they feel about him right now. And here's what it is with Oscar Sundquist. I think Oscar Sundquist is a guy that you look at for next season because we all know Tyler Bozak, an unrestricted free agent. Maybe you bring him back, maybe you don't. But Oscar Sundquist is going to be getting third-line responsibilities moving forward because he has that potential. Joe Vitale tells the story all the time. Sidney Crosby was very upset when they got rid of Oscar Sundquist in Pittsburgh because Sydney told Joe this guy's going to be awesome and we've seen that it's just when you're on fourth line you don't get that opportunity because your responsibilities are a little bit different I think if he gets that third line role he might be able to create some more offense but look for Robert Thomas it all comes down to what you said you got to have a consistent line mate that changes a lot when Vladimir Tarasenko is healthy because he's going to have a Tarasenko a Cairo or a Hoffman if they decide to go back to that but right now the biggest way that you can utilize Robert Thomas is staying at even strength so you can cycle those lines out there because he had his best work in that first game. Yes, his line mates were Schwartz and Sunquist, but it was also because they played five-on-five hockey, and that's where Robert Thomas shines. Yeah, to your point on the pairing thing, I mean, like O'Reilly has a pair. You you always know, regardless of who the third guy is out there with him, he's going to be with Perron. Yeah. Same thing for Schwartz and Shin. Those yep. guys are going to be together, and now you've got to find who Who's is that, that guy with Thomas. Who's the guy that, regardless of who the third player is with them at any given time, you know, if you see Thomas, if you see 18, you're also going to see this other guy with him no matter yeah. what. That is something that they need to figure out over the next few weeks. And real quick, I thought the, the phrase that stuck out to me that Joe Vitale talked about when we chatted with him was the fact that this is you're creating something and it's going to take some time. It reminds me a lot of what we went to when they made that cup run. You had to get acclimated to O'Reilly, Bozak, and Maroon in those three lines. You did, and you started a flourish. I'm not saying they're going to be horrible in the first portion of the season, but you got to give this some time to kind of build before you sit there and say it's been it's terrible. Let's stick with the Blues here for a second. If you could have any three Blues flip the switch, sw- flip the switch rather, if you will. This is my homework assignment. I gave you some homework assignments. If you could have any three Blues, kind of flip the switch, turn it on, start playing better, beginning on Saturday in a game that you'll hear right here on 101 ESPN, Blues versus Kings with pregame coverage starting at 6 o'clock. Three blues to flip the switch. Who would you pick? We'll get Alex Ferrario's picks on that. Want to hear from you as well. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line. We'll get into some of that coming up next on 101 ESPN. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. If you could have three blues flip the switch and start playing better tomorrow, who would be on that list for you? 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line to get involved. He's Alex Ferrario. I'm Brandon Kylie. It is BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. Alex, I gave you this homework assignment last night. I said, you know what? You're my Blues Insider, our, our pre-post and intermission host. We're going to be out at Centene Community Ice Center tomorrow hosting live from 11 to 2. I need to get my guy 
I need to hear his inside. If you could have three blues flip the switch, Alex Ferrario, who would be on that list for you? You ready for this? Let's start it. Okay, Brett Hall, okay. Adam Oates, okay. and Grant Fuhrer. No, that's not how this not works. Not Al McKinnis. No, not Al McKinnis. Okay. We always know he's going to be there. <laughs> no, here they are. So I thought about this. You texted me this last night at like 1230, which I'm like, oh, cool. Thanks for the homework assignment when I'm about to fall asleep. The first one is Tory Krug. And I think we all have agreed that Tory Krug has not looked great. It's been good. Hasn't been great. But if you flip the switch with Tory Krug, if he gets this going tomorrow, this does a couple of things. This creates more offense for the Blues than what they're producing right now, not only on the power play, but at even strength. I think he's been a part of it, but I think he could be a bigger part of it. But it also flips the switch on the defensive side. He got outworked last night on that goal that was scored by the San Jose Sharks in the second period, Sorensen. That's 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 normal when you have a small statured defenseman, but as we've talked with a lot of NHL network analysts, he is basically kind of flying under the radar when it comes to his defensive play. So I think if Krug flips that switch, it does an awful lot for this team overall. The second one is who we just spoke about, Robert Thomas. I went and looked at this. He has two shots on goal this season, BK. Two. That is not enough for Robert Thompson. I know he's a playmaker. I think it is. I'm not worried about his shooting. I am, though, because I know he's a playmaker, and that's that's his style. But as I mentioned on the show before, for him to take that next step, he's got to start being a lethal weapon offensively like Braden Shen. Keep being the playmaker. Pass the puck if you have that opportunity. But I think Robert Thomas can hit that next level, and if he breaks through, it's when those shots start to produce because he becomes a dual threat, at least in my opinion. So he's another one that needs to flip that switch kind of like he was in the first game of the season. And my third one, I battled with this because I really wanted to go with Zach Sanford because that first game we saw how lethal the Blues can be with four real real strong scoring lines. But I picked Hoffman, and I think it's pretty obvious why. You sign him to a $4 million contract, and you're you're forced to play him on the top line, at least last night, because he's not working with the other two. Power play is going to be much better with Mike Hoffman, but I think if Mike Hoffman can break through of this pond hockey mentality of what Ottawa and Florida was and start at least getting into that physical play, I think he becomes a real threat for this Blues team on either side of the centerman that he plays with. And if he can flip that switch... It, it comes to the point where other teams really have to question who they're putting their top defensive line against, right? Like you look at it and you say, if Hoffman's playing with O'Reilly and Perron, we got to shut down that line. Well, guess what that's going to do? If Thomas flips the switch, that's going to be a lot of offense. If the Shen, Schwartz, and Kyrie line keeps going, a lot of offense. You got to have that that line that can create problems for the other team. And if Hoffman can flip that switch, I really think we can get to that point. So your three were Tory Krug, Robert Thomas, and Mike Hoffman. I agree with two of those for sure. Okay. I think Tory Krug and Mike Hoffman, for just about any list like this, have to be on there because those are two of your significant offseason additions. Tory Krug has been fine, but he has not been as good as we would have expected. Right. Let's be honest. We 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 can we can speak about him the way that we should. He's getting paid a lot of money. We were critical of Justin Falk's play last year. Tory Krug hasn't been good enough so far this year. And I think he would tell you the same thing if you had an honest moment with him. So he needs to be better moving forward. The guy that I would disagree with a little bit is Robert Thomas. Um, I think he's been pretty good. I think you need his line, mate, line mates to be a little bit better. And that's just a little bit of a disagreement in terms of the playing yeah. style. Not a huge one there. I totally understand why you would have him on well, this list. Look, we can't disagree on sports radio, BK, so you need to stop that. So I do have Hoffman and Krug on this list with you. 
The other one that I would go with, I'm struggling between two players, but I'll tell you my pick here in a second. I'm struggling between David Perron and Zach Sanford. I think it's got to be one of those two guys. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to go with David Perron because last year, if you look back at what the Blues did in the regular season, the reason why they were able to make it through when Vladimir Tarasenko was out was because Perron stepped up as a legitimate number one goal scorer for mm-hmm. you. He finished that year with 25 goals and 60 points for the Blues. That's a really, really great season. He was tied for the lead on the team with uh, goals and was second to only Ryan O'Reilly in terms of total points on the year. He was great last season. So far this year, he hasn't really done a whole lot offensively. And I think that can switch for him pretty quickly. But if you just look at the total shots that he's taken, six on the year, I'm far more concerned about Perron having six shots on goal in four games than I am with any shots number from Robert Thomas. So for me, he would be the guy that I think needs to turn it on. But really, if we're getting down to brass tacks a little bit, one of Perron or Hoffman has to step up. One of them has to become a legitimate Mm -hmm. goal scoring threat for this Blues team to be what we thought they were going to be coming into the season, both on the power play and also in five on five. Well, and I mean, look, the common theme that we just stated right there are your top players being your top players. I mean, let's look at the two games that the Blues have lost this season. How did the Blues lose to Colorado? Because Rantanen, Landeskog, and McKinnon just basically went out there and pond hockeyed you into an 8 nothing loss. I mean, I think they both had like four points, or each one of them had four points individually. It's your top guys playing your top guys. San Jose, if you look at last night, now Sorensen was the one that scored the goal. He was the third-line player. But Logan Couture, Tomas Hurdles, the one that scored the shootout goal, Martin Jones, Brent Burns, their top guys were being their top guys. If the Blues want to have success, and this sounds like deja vu for me because this is what we said at the beginning of the season where the Blues were last place in in the NHL and they made the run to the Cup, you got to have your number one guys being your number one guys. Ryan O'Reilly was pulling that wagon for so long because he was the only one that was leading the team. There was no Shen, there was no Tarasenko, there was no Schwartz, there was no Perron. They needed guys to step up. When the players started playing like number one players, they came through. So I think the Perron's a perfect one. And I believe he will, by he, the way. He, He's he, one that I'm I'm not worried right. about David Perron. I just like if I could if I could flip a switch right. and I knew on Saturday he was going to start producing like he did a year ago. Mm-hmm. I would love to do that. But I'm not I'm not worried about him being able to flip it. I just want it to happen sooner rather and, than and later. And here's the thing with Perron, too. If you go back and look at last season, the first portion of it. His his goals were coming from power play and overtime. Like he was the overtime magician, it, it felt like. And then power play time. He's not getting as many on the power play because think about it. I mean, you have so many guys to pass this puck to. Tory Krug's taking shots. You got O'Reilly. You had Hoffman there for a while. I think he'll get there. I like the idea of Sanford too because I think he provides a dual threat that you could pl- put with Robert Thomas if he flips the switch. But again, the common theme of what we just did with these names are your top guys being your top guys? And right now they just have not been. Yeah, basically you need a left winger to step up. Yeah, <laughs> like, I, I know. I, mean, you I do. know you need one of Sanford, Hoffman, or uh, Perron but, to step but up. But remember, Hoffman prefers playing on his offhand on the right wing, so that's sure. part of the problem too. I mean, that's Perron. Perron plays the right right wing, but he's a, he's a left winger naturally. They like doing that offhand, and if if Hoffman can't get on that right side. That's going to be another kind of thing that he's going to have to learn to adapt to. So it's going to be tough. That's Alex Ferrario. I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. Coming up next, my Kansas City Chiefs are taking on the Buffalo Bills this weekend. That mean, means we had to 
give a call to the bullpen. Donnie Fandango from 105.7 The Point is going to hop in studio with us coming up next. We're going to talk about how he is uber confident in the Bills that they're going to be able to take down the Chiefs this weekend. Plus, I want to get his thoughts on what we saw last night from the Blues as a Blues fan himself. Donnie Fandango is going to hop in studio with us coming up next on 101 ESPN. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. All right, you heard it from Alex Ferrario there. Donnie Fandango has been trying to intimidate me all week. If you don't know Donnie, he's a fantastic radio host over on 105.7 The Point. You can check him out during our show. Please, please don't. But, you know, he's, he does great work out there on 105.7 The Point, And we love having him in studio. Donnie also happens to be the biggest Bills fan that I've ever met. I, I, I've been I've been on board for a while now. Yeah, yeah. he's gone through a lot. And a lot. I respect the hell out of the fact that you have been a Bills fan for so long. Yeah. You've been through some stuff, man. Yeah, we re- really have. And what was so what's been so crazy about it, man, is like. Even when the Rams were here and the Rams were good, I still didn't root for them. Like, I didn't root against them, but they never felt like my team. And and when I would, I went to the Dome once, saw the Bills play, and it was just felt like my team. You I know mean, what I mean? So yeah. I, I just can't jump ship at this so point. So what sold you on them then? Well, because I was a kid, man, and it was at the very beginning of them throwing up massive amounts of points on people. Right. And it was just fun to watch. And when I grew up, my dad liked Washington uh-huh. and anyone playing the Cowboys. So I, <laughs> so like, I didn't want to be a Cowboys fan. I didn't want to root for Washington. That was the same team as my dad. So I just liked how Jim Kelly and Thurman Thomas and Andre Reid did it back so in the day. So when the world was normal, I used to go over to the post i would watch all the games over there and i i don't know why this is the case but there seems to be a very large bills fan contingent here in st louis because yeah. of donnie i uh, maybe maybe it's donnie <laughs> yeah, that's like donnie. leading all of these people but anytime i'd go there they have you know those two rooms right that they have kind of blocked up they would have like the divider open and it would just be a massive room of Bills fans watching the Bills games every Sunday together. So you're not alone here in St. Louis as a Bills fan. Yeah, we're a passionate, we're a passionate group. That's for sure. I, apparently they call you guys the mafia. I was yes. unaware of this. Yes. And Donnie, fact, I, actually, I've seen video of Donnie break tables too after Bills wins. Now let me, let me tell you something. And this is not a joke. If ever given the opportunity in which to do that, yeah. jump through the table, not only would I do it, but I would do it with the table on fire okay. as well. Wait, just, we're doing this after the Super yes. Bowl win. Can we expense this? Is yeah. that okay? We're Am doing we expense do. a table? A hundred percent. Like yeah. I, I cannot wait to actually go there and tailgate and have one too many beaters and then jump through a table. Yeah, we're I can't doing wait this. To do it. We're doing this with a Super Bowl win this year. <laughs> All right. So we're talking to Donnie Fandango, host over on 1057 the point. His his bills are taking on my Chiefs this weekend. I feel like we'll have to come up with some kind of a friendly wager on this game before the game is played. We just did. You're going through a table. <laughs> So the thing that has been difficult, I would imagine being a Bills fan, I, and I feel this for you. I, I feel like we have a kinship because of this. The Bills haven't really had a quarterback since Jim Kelly. Yeah, man. And the Chiefs were the same way. I mean, my entire life, it was we had like three really good years of Trent Green and then a bunch of crap, basically, until we got Alex Smith. And then, you know, we've got the best quarterback in the world now, which is great. What is it like now to be able to watch who I believe outside of Patrick Mahomes and maybe Aaron Rodgers, probably the other like most enjoyable quarterback to watch in the league. What What is this like for you as a Bills fan who hasn't had this in like 20 years? Well, to be honest with you, man, 
I would say that I have really just this year, I have finally given the Josh Allen like two thumbs up yeah. situation. I was real leery, man. After you draft EJ Manuel in the first round, I've got a right to be leery. All right. <laughs> but but I was I, I just just watching the guy play and listen, man, like th- th- there's not a real tangible thing that I can tell you here, but. There's a feeling that I get when I watch my Cardinals when they're playing really well and my mm. Blues when they're playing really well. And there is just an attitude and an aura around that guy that he just finds a way to win. Now, I will say, he also will find a way to do something <laughs> mind-bogglingly stupid and make like, you go, oh, my God, 4th and 33 or whatever it was a couple of weeks ago. but fumbling I, with the game on the line. Yeah, but, but they have. I mean, Brian Dable has put together an amazing plan for him. Stefan Diggs, man, I, 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 I greatly under-exaggerated how big of an impact that he would make, and him and Cole Beasley have just you know, given Allen such great, great receivers to throw to. I mean, they've built this team perfectly. The construction of the roster has been amazing. Especially on the defensive side. I mean, the fact that you just built around that secondary of free agents and drafts uh, is incredible, in my opinion, because that on top of Josh Allen and Stephon Diggs, in my opinion, is going to be the strength going into this weekend's game is the fact that that defense has been so good. Well, the last time we played Kansas City, Matt Milano was out. I'm pretty sure Milano was out, and Edmonds was not 100%. And basically your entire defensive line was decimated. I put zero stock into that game for what it's worth. But I'm just, I I still uh, very much, you know, like the nucleus of what's going on here, whether whatever happens on Sunday happens, but it's really unbelievably strange to be a Bills fan and go, I'm looking forward to next year and the year after that. You know, the pieces are in place. I really love Coach McDermott. You know what I mean? Like, they, they, it just gives you a reason for hope, which is something I have not had in a long I time. I had that same, like, 180 mentality in 2018-19 with the Blues because I was doing a radio show, and I, for one, will raise my hand and say it was me. In November, I'm sitting there saying, Blues should just lose for that number one overall pick, right? The lose for Hughes crew. I would have been head, headlining that. And then I flipped the switch, and like in February, I'm going, I'm looking forward to the next couple of seasons. I hadn't said that in a really long time, probably since the President's Trophy Blues team back in the early 2000s. Yeah, and I don't even really know how to take it. You know, like even watching these last two games, and, and I was saying this to Randy Carricker yesterday morning, I think. I after both games, I have had huge headaches. Like they feel like tension headaches, man. I'm not sitting down during the I had games. that last week during the Chiefs game. I, I got done. I was like, man, I I don't know if I need a cigarette or a sandwich or a nap. I don't even smoke, but I need something because yeah, this it, I'm exhausted. And it's just something that again, as a Bills fan, just unfamiliar, like unfamiliar territory. And that's why when it comes to the game on Sunday night, much respect for the Chiefs. They're fantastic. They're the Super Bowl champs, and they are on that pedestal for a reason but i tweeted it out why not us why not yep. I, I honestly think that we have just as good of a chance as anybody else in that final and four. you should you should because the bills are really good and this is so going into that game last week i thought there was no chance that the the chiefs would lose i was almost overconfident playing against the browns mm-hmm. i just i don't trust baker mayfield enough i don't think they have the weapons on the outside and it we all saw the game and if patrick Mahomes didn't get hurt that was not a five point game and i think we can all agree with that the Bills are the first team that they've played in a little while where I'm like, hey, if things if the Chiefs don't play their A game, 
the Bills can beat them. Josh Allen is good enough to beat them. Stephon Diggs scares the hell out of me. Mm-hmm. And by the way, two of the Chiefs' top four corners could be out for this game, which is a little bit problematic going up against one of the five best receivers You're in the league. starting to sound scared, Donnie. Maybe a little bit. That little. being said. Oh, never mind. <laughs> here we go. Never mind. <laughs> Here's his butt. If Patrick Mahomes plays and they play well, I still think they're a heavy favorite in that game. I know I know it's a three-point line. I think it should probably be closer to like six or seven if Mahomes is truly healthy. I just, I trust Mahomes, and I'm not quite there yet in big games with Josh Allen. Do you, do you right now trust Josh Allen in this one? Oh, man. I mean, well, first of all, when you've got the, the legitimately, you said it, the world's best quarterback on your team, you're kind of feeling all right about a lot of things, all right? So, no, Josh Allen, to me, has not had that game where, I don't want to say he hasn't had the game where he's put the team on his back and won, but certainly not on this stage. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one thing that is consistent and one thing that I will say, and there's going to be some Bills fans that yell at me about this, but I would love love to know Josh Allen's numbers on deep passes because my man cannot hit him. I love him to pieces. I I love 17. I love what he can do across the middle, but, but, but unless John Brown, uh, AKA smoke has got a good head (laughs) of steam. I mean, there's a good chance that Josh Allen's going to throw it seven yards over the wide receiver's head. And that, and, and that is something that still concerns me, but yeah, man, there's a lot to prove. I mean, you've done it. We haven't. I'm just hoping that, that, that we can. Here's a variable for me. And I don't know if this is me reading too much into it, but when I watched that video, of the Bills fans or Bills Mafia that were waiting at the airport for this team when they clinched their division, basically, in the playoff spot, seeing the massive amount of people that were waiting in the cold for those guys when they came off the airplane, there's an it factor that goes with it, man. And I don't know what it is. I've never been a professional athlete, obviously, but I would imagine as an athlete, you see that support and you see what this Bills team has been doing throughout this year. That's going to be a factor in this game, even if they're not playing in Buffalo. I think it's going to be something that's very crucial on Sunday. Yeah, I'll tell you my biggest disappointment of this run, man, and and I mean for you guys as well, is that – is that your your Kansas City, your Arrowhead is not full to the brim with fans losing their mind. Yeah. And the same in Buffalo, man. Yeah. Like, I mean, I mean, you talk about a legit home field advantage. Both of our teams absolutely have that. And that's just a bummer that it's not going to be asses to elbows in both places. That being said... Donnie, I, so as a Chiefs fan, I, I was in KC doing sports radio out there last year, and the topic that we would have any time the Chiefs would play against a young quarterback in the AFC was basically, hey, is this going to be Mahomes' new rival, right? We did it whenever they played against Deshaun Watson and Baker Mayfield, any of the young quarterbacks. It was like, can this guy be the guy, right? And they're, they're still kind of looking for that. There's still an open question of who that guy is going to be, especially now that Watson, we don't know if he's going to be in the AFC moving forward. And with Jackson and Baltimore not being what they we thought we were. Right. Do you think Josh Allen can be that? Yeah, I, I absolutely do. And, and as a matter of fact, I was thinking that maybe this is the first year that the AFC championship is is Kansas City and Buffalo, and maybe that this is something that we revisit. Because, again, and I'm not trying to get, get too high or too far along, I mean, the, 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 the pieces are in place for us to do this for, for a bit. Mm-hmm. I mean, as long as you've got Patrick Mahomes, you're going to be all right. So, you know, I think that there will be some, some up and coming. I think it's going to really be something if Deshaun Watson goes to Miami. That's going to yeah. shake up our division a lot. But, I mean, I see no reason not to. And I'll tell you what, the good thing, too, about you, 
Josh Allen that I that I see is it looks like the kid really legitimately cares about working and getting better. So even though he had a season this year where his completion percentage did increase so much, I still hope that when the offseason hits, he's that hungry to continue to prove people wrong because there are still people that have that sort of snide, well, he is whatever sort of thing, and he deserves more respect than that. That's all I'm saying. You're damn should, right. Should, should he be in the Mahomes conversation? No, but he should be maybe in that next tier down. I agree with that. Oh. What Donnie just said, I yeah. agree with. Yeah. I think I think it's Rodgers and Mahomes at the top for this season, and I think next, any other quarterback that you want to include in the conversation, go for it. But Allen should be in that next tier, regardless of who else you were including in it. My frustration with some fans was, and not necessarily you, Donnie, I don't think you do this. People tried to make it that it is Rodgers, Mahomes, and Allen this year. And I don't think he's there yet. He may get there, but I don't think he's there quite yet. He's a mix between Ben Roethlisberger and Dan Marino. (laughs) Get used to it. And get ready for it. Now, Donnie, let me give you some optimism, though, because we have something here on BK and Ferrario, and it's carried over from Ribs and BK. BK likes to BKO some teams. And okay. what that means is he, he kind of puts this jinx onto him. And what he said a little bit ago of, look, if Pat Mahomes plays the way Pat Mahomes plays, there's no chance for the Buffalo Bills. So I'm going to do this for you, Donnie. That's the sound effect of the BKO. So I'd feel good going into this weekend. I got to tell you, I normally get 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 like really worked up about these sorts of things. Like to the point, I'm a guy that deals with some anxiety. But I'll give myself some anxiety sure. about it. I am so looking forward to Sunday, no matter what happens. Like yeah. I am, I, this season, I was telling my daughter, we have won 15 games and lost three. <laughs> that's amazing. I love like, that. That's amazing. I will take that any and all times. And, 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 and again, I didn't think that we were quite here yet. I thought that we were on the cusp, but not quite. So I'm not just happy to be here. I definitely think that we can win, but I'm looking forward to the future, man. What is your prediction for Sunday, Donnie? Ah, I hate that man because <laughs> I, I, I'm not, you know, the, the, I try to look at this man in the vein of, of, a, of a huge sports fan and not a homer. Okay. And I do really legitimately believe that the Chiefs are better than the Bills, but I also very much believe that the Bills can win. Yeah. But if I had to put money on a team, I would probably say the Chiefs at this point. Don't do that. Don't do that. Donnie, you stick with your you team. You got to stick with your team. Yeah. Well, you you got to pick your squad. Right. You got to ride with them. And right. I know you are. But you got to pick your team. You can't pick the Chiefs. No, 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 no. Now listen. Now listen. I'm (laughs) I'm trying to be the smart, like like sports guy that's not doing this with my heart, but with my head. And my head allow the two to combine for a moment. Oh well, if. Dude, listen, I am going to be saying terrible words about your team starting probably tomorrow evening at 5 o'clock. I want to be around when that so, happens. So, but I'm just saying, like, the, the Chiefs are awesome. The Bills are going to have to play a damn near perfect game in which to win. Not to say that I don't think we can. I'm just trying to be a smart fan is what I'm trying to be more than anything else. I think this is going to be one of the most fun games we've seen in a while. I think it has the potential, like you said, to be a a preview of things that are to come. I think this is not the last time that we see the bills and the chiefs in the AFC championship game, because they both have tremendous coaches and fantastic quarterbacks right now. I'm going to be taking the chiefs. I'm going to be taking them minus the three points. No surprise to anybody, but the, the bills, I am not worried about the bills, but I do believe that they can beat the chiefs. The Browns. I did not believe that. I believe any of the other three teams remaining can beat the chiefs. And that is why these games this weekend, and then going into the super bowl, I, there is no bad Super Bowl left. The Absolutely. Bills in the Super Bowl would be awesome. Any of the NFC teams remaining would be awesome matchups for either the Bills or the Chiefs. We got the four best teams remaining in the in the NFL right now. And I think that that, that we should make plans for in 2021 
when the Bills are in Kansas City next year, next season. Oh, hell yeah. We got to do it. Absolutely. Let's do some barbecue. Let's do some tailgating. Let's go. I'm in. I, I've got a road trip. We can get planned ready to go. Boom. We'll make sure we've got some good tickets for you. That's Donnie Fandango. You can hear him on 105.7 The Point. You should listen to him, but maybe not too much. That's Donnie Fandango. Thanks, Donnie, guys. I appreciate you hopping on, man. Anytime. Uh, awesome. That is Donnie Fandango. We're going to cross things over with the Fast Lane coming up next. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. Brandon Kylie, good show today. Donnie Fandango was tremendous talking Bills versus Chiefs with us just a little bit ago. We also had the great pleasure of speaking with Steve Weich of NFL Network earlier today. Talked a lot about the Sean Watson and Eric Bieniemy situations with him. If you missed any of it, the whole show is on 101ESPN.com and the free 101 ESPN app. It is presented by I Promise. Crossing things over with the fast lane. Anthony Stolter in studio. What's going on, man? What's up, boys? Oh, I get the horn. He gets the party horn. I like it. That's how it works. Wow. BK never gets a party horn. No, just no, so you know. No. Just so you know, Stoltz. Well, there's got to be some some opportunities for BK to get the party, oh, party yeah. horn. We, we got something for no. We got no? something for BK. It is the best of BK and Ferrari. No, that's not this? it. I don't know. That wasn't what it. That was know? supposed to be the unpopular opinion <laughs> open. But apparently there's something else put there there now. So um, sounds like a best of show. <laughs> Good effort. All right. Uh, we don't have a ton of time here. So let's talk a little bit about these matchups on Sunday. Uh, Stoltz. What in your mind is the best possible Super Bowl matchup that we can get out of these? Like if I'm a if I'm a neutral observer of the NFL, I'm a casual fan that I watch, you know, the national games every week and I'll watch the Sunday night games and stuff. And I really sit down to watch the Super Bowl and I want a good matchup this year. What do you think is the best case scenario for me? All right. So let me go with my honest answer and then let me actually give you an answer. Okay. okay? So my honest answer to that is there is no bad matchup. I, I, I think even... From a national perspective, maybe Bills and Bucks don't don't get the the love because Tampa Bay's not one of your, you know, blue bloods, so to speak, like Green Bay is. But you got Tom Brady. And the Buccaneers defense has been underrated virtually all season long. Green Bay, their defense has improved greatly. Or I don't have to tell anybody on Aaron Rodgers. And then on the other side, you've got the defending Super Bowl champs with Patrick Mahomes and that and that offense. Or the bandwagon team that everybody, not Johnny Fandango, not, you know, the, he, he's not the bandwagon fan. He's been a fan since the 90s. But a lot of people have hopped on Josh Allen and the Bills bandwagon. So there really isn't a bad matchup. But I think the best one would probably probably be Chiefs and Packers. I'm with you. The State Farm title. Yeah, I don't. But I mean, like the Buc- if it's Buccaneers Chiefs, that would be fantastic, too. Like you said, there is truly no bad. Ma- I think the worst one, I think you're right. I think the worst one possible is Bills versus Bucks, And that's a really good Super Bowl. Yeah. Like, that'd be a ton of fun to watch. Josh Allen, a, a guy that everybody wrote off two years ago, including myself. I didn't think he was going to become this. I No way. And now he's become one of the five, six best quarterbacks in the league right now. I mean, it's it's amazing the transformation. And they just, they built this roster the right way. They put an offensive line in front of Josh Allen, spent a ton of money to do it, spent draft capital to do it. This last offseason, they said, okay, what are we missing for Allen to make sure that he can take that next step? Oh, we need to get a legitimate number one receiver. And they go out and they get the best one available in Stephon Diggs. That defense has been built up over the last few. I mean, 
they really did it the right way. And so I give them full credit for that. I, I just look at Packers versus Chiefs with the two guys that were at the top of the MVP list for everybody all season long. You've got Rodgers going for his second, the thing that Breeze was never able to do. Mahomes trying to go back to back for the first time since the early 2000s when the Patriots did it. The storylines are just that's that's the best one possible. I mean, even though like Mahomes versus Brady, you know, Brady, the, we didn't There's get less that on the line for Brady, though. I, I know he, he doing it outside of Belichick is huge, right? but I'm trying to think of this almost as like a, we've got two weeks to talk about these games. I think there is more there for Rodgers than there is for Brady because Brady's already established as the GOAT. That happened whenever he beat your team after coming back 28 to three. Jerk move, BK. That, that ah, was, I'm well aware. That was the moment when I think everybody all kind of at once was like, okay, yeah, nobody's been better than this. This yeah. is it. It's over. Um, and he can elevate a little bit from there, but he's just, he's becoming, he's widening that gap more so than anything. Rodgers can actually jump up on the list of the greatest quarterbacks if he gets one. And both those guys, Mahomes and Rodgers would be going for number two. So that there's a big storyline there, but I'll tell you what, if Brady were to win this year, it, it would, it would be one of the most impressive Super Bowls that he has won because I, and point. to me, because when, when he signed with Tampa, I'm like, Hey, Good luck. You don't get six. You don't get six guaranteed victories. Mm-hmm. You play in the NFC South. Good luck having to do it on the road, champ. And he's done it. Yeah. You know, Washington certainly wasn't a, a, a really big opponent, but the Saints owned him in two regular season games. Goes down there, plays mistake free football. Defense sets sets them up for victory. And now you're now you're in the NFC Championship game against Green Bay. You beat Aaron Rodgers, and then either Patrick Mahomes or, or this Bills team. With that Buccaneers team, your first year playing the NFC? It's unbelievable. That man. would be one of the more impressive victories that Tom Brady has had. And, I mean, the guy's got a pile of them, so that's, that's really saying something. He's 43 years old. He's going to turn 44 later this year. It's incredible. And he's still, I mean, I, I don't know how many quarterbacks I would take the, over him. Maybe none, honestly, with the game on the line and I need four points. Right. It's it's ridiculous. I can't believe we're still here. It's, it's 2021. He won his first Super Bowl when I was eight years old, and he's doing it again. All right, calm down, BK. Easy on Tom Brady. Okay. I've become Tom Brady guy. I don't know how that happened. Which is funny because you've been anti-Tom Brady for a while. I thought he was done five years ago. You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast, powered by I Promise.